Section 21 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches, November 1914 to August 1923, by Benito Mussolini. Translated by Bernardo Caranta di San Severino. How Fascismo was created, its evolution and essence. Speech delivered at the Teatro Comunale of Bologna, 3rd April 1921. Bologna, the capital of the so-called Red Region of Emilia, a region thought to be lost to the Italian state as far as laws and authority were concerned, from the 2nd to the 4th of April, passed through truly memorable days. The learned and noble city with its fine patriotic traditions, whose very walls recall the popular and patrician insurrection against the Austrians, welcomed Benito Mussolini with manifestations of solidarity and veneration such as were accorded to Giuseppe Garibaldi. For, if the latter was a liberator from foreign tyranny, the former had been no less a liberator from an equal tyranny arising from similar causes, although materialised through different means and by different agents living in our midst. All who witnessed those enthusiastic manifestations instantly perceived that the problem of Italian internal politics was now solved by the definite defeat of that parasitic anti-nationalist socialism, the enemy of liberty, which had chosen the Valle Padana as the most suitable experimental field for the fecundation of the microbes of collectivist utopia, and incidentally for the exploitation of the masses of the proletariat. Fascisti of Emilia and Romagna, citizens of Bologna, I feel that I might be carried out of that sphere of eloquence which is mine by all the circumstances of this meeting, beginning with the welcomes of yesterday evening and the songs of last night, and ending with this magnificent sea of heads and the greeting which I received with the greatest veneration from the widow of our unforgettable Giulio Giordani, and the presence of two heroic women, the widows of the two heroes Battisti and Venetian. Applause. But, as I hope, and... I'm almost certain that you do not expect eloquence from me, but a short, abrupt speech, as is my habit. I will proceed to speak clearly in the fascista manner. How Fascismo was born. I thank my friend Grande for having presented me to you and with such flattering words. I do not think, however, that I am guilty of the sin of pride if I accept them. I think I may say, in accordance with Socrates, that I know myself. Applause. How, then, was this fascismo born? Amid what conflicting passions, sympathy, hatred, and lack of comprehension? It was not only born in my mind and heart in that meeting held in March 1919 in the little hall at Milan. It was born of the profound and perennial need of the, this, our Mediterranean and Aryan race, which felt the essential foundations of his existence, threatened by a tragic folly which will crumble to pieces today, upon the ground on which it was raised. We felt then, we who were not penitent Magdalens, we who had always had the courage to uphold intervention on reason in those days of 1915, we who were not ashamed of having barred the way to Austria on the Piave and having crushed her at Vittoria Veneto, we who wished for victorious peace felt, at once, almost before the exultation of victory had passed, that our task was not ended, and I myself felt that my work was not done. As a matter of fact, at every turn of events it was said that my task, and the task of the forces I lead, was accomplished. 
In May 1915, when the fascismo of revolutionary action had swept away all neutralists from the streets and squares of Italy, even in the smallest villages, it was said, Mussolini has no more to say to the nation. But when the tragic days of Caporetto came, and Milan was grey and ghastly for those who felt that if the Austrians passed and came to the city of the Cinque Giornati, it would be the end of Italy, then we felt that we still had a word to say. And again, after victory, when there arose the more or less democratic school of enunciation, which was intent upon mutilating the victory, we fascisti had the supreme and unprejudiced courage to proclaim ourselves imperialists against all renunciation. That was the first battle, fought in the Theatre of the Scala in January 1919. But how did it happen? We had won, we had sacrificed the flower of our youth, and they came to us with bills of usury and extortion. They disputed with us the sacred boundaries of the country, and there were Democrats in Italy whose democracy consisted in imperialism for others, and no imperialism for us, who threw this ridiculous accusation at us because we intended that Italy should be bounded on the north by the Brenner, she shall be while there is Italian blood in Italy. We intended that the eastern boundary should be at the Nervoso, because that is the just and natural confine of our country. And they accused us because we did not turn deaf ears to the appeal of Fiume, because we feel in our hearts the sufferings of our brothers in Dalmatia, because, in fact, we feel those bonds of race to be alive and vital which bind us not only to the Italians of Zara, Ragusa and Cataro, but also to those of the canton Ciccino and Corsica, to those beyond the oceans, to all that great family of fifty million men whom we wish to unite in the same pride of race applause. Already we have noticed the first signs of the socialist offensive. On 16th February, Milan was the witness, to the fear and terror of the trembling middle classes, of a procession of 20,000 Bolshevists, who after having hymned Lenin from the top of the castle towers, proclaimed that the Bolshevist revolution was imminent. The Pride of Victory on the morrow of that day, I issued an article which made an impression also among some friends, and which was entitled The Return of the Triumphant Beast, published in Popolo d'Italia, 17th of February, 1919. In it was said, we are ready to dig trenches in the squares of Italy and set up barbed wire in order to win and fight to the last against the enemy. And the sabotage, begun with that parade, lasted all the summer. Also, in those days, we fascisti had the courage to defend certain actions which, measured by the standard of current morals, perhaps were indefensible. But, gentlemen, war is like revolution. It must be taken as a whole. Detail cannot and must not be gone into. But meanwhile, the campaign had its results upon the elections. 1,850,000 electors registered their vote with the symbol of the sickle and the hammer. 156 deputies were returned to the chamber. The catastrophe seemed imminent. Then I was fished out, the suicide of the waters, not by any means too limpid, of the old Naviglio. But one thing had been forgotten, our tenacious spirit and sometimes indomitable will. I, proud of my 4,000 votes, and those who saw me in those days know how immovably I accepted that electoral response, said, the battle goes on, because I firmly believed that the day would come in which the Italians would be ashamed of the elections of 16th November, that the day would come in which 
the Italians would no longer elect in two cities that ignoble deserter whom I do not wish to name. And it has proved true, because this man today, not being able to maintain his part in the drama, has descended from the stage, and, having despised the Gatti Regia, now asks them for protection. But has the growth of this movement of fascismo, this young, ardent and heroic movement, finished yet? I, who vindicate the paternity of this, my creature so overflowing with life, feel sometimes that it has already overstepped the modest boundaries I laid down for it. Now we fascisti have a clear programme. We must move on, led by a pillar of fire, because we are slandered, not understood. And however much violence may be deplored, it is evident that we, in order to make our ideas understood, must beat refractory skulls with resounding blows. Necessary Violence But we do not make a school, a system, or worse still, an aesthetic of violence. We are violent when it is necessary to be so. But I tell you at once that this necessary violence on the part of the fascisti must have a character and style of its own, definitely aristocratic, or, if you prefer, surgical. Our punitive expeditions, all those acts of violence which figure in the papers, must always have the character of a just retort and legitimate reprisal, because we are the first to recognise that it is sad, after having fought the external enemy, to have to fight the enemy within, who, whether they like it or not, are Italians. But it is necessary, and as long as it is necessary, we shall continue to carry out this hard and thankless task. Now the Democrats, the Republicans, and the Socialists accuse us of various things. The Socialists, hitherto, have said that we were sold to the profiteers and the agrarians. Now there are not enough profiteers in the whole of Italy to support a movement like ours, and in any case I must say that they would be rather stupid profiteers because, from the March of 1919, we, in our fascista programmes, have laid down fiscal provisions which are pretty heavy, and in any case anti-profiteer. The accusations of the Democrats are equally ridiculous, and also those of the Republicans. I cannot explain to myself why the Republicans are against a movement which has Republican tendencies like ours. I could understand them being against us if we were in favour of the monarchy. They say to us, you have no preconceptions. We have not, and we are proud of it. But you must explain the phenomena of the anger and the incomprehension of the socialists. The socialists had formed a state within a state. If this new state had been more liberal, more modern, nearer the old type, there would have been nothing against it. But this state, and you know it by direct experience, is more tyrannical, illiberal, and overbearing than the old one. And for this reason, that which we are causing today is a revolution to break up the Bolshevist state, while waiting to settle our accounts with the liberal state which remains. Applause. The Socialist Crisis and the fascista attitude to the elections. There are those who think that the socialist crisis is only a crisis limited to a few men. But it goes deeper, my dear friends, and it represents a general upheaval. Among other absurd things, there has been that of baptising socialism as scientific. Now, there is nothing scientific in the world. Science explains the how of things, but does not explain the why. If, then, there is nothing scientific in what are called the exact sciences, 
What is more absurd than to try and pass off a scientific, a vast, uncertain, underground and dark movement such as socialism has been, even though it may have had a useful function at first, when it directed the oppressed peoples towards new ways of life, because you will agree with me that there is no turning back. Foolish, reactionary and conservative contraband practices must not be carried on under the fascista flag. To wrench from the masses the conquests they have obtained through sacrifice would be impossible. We are the first to recognise that a state law should grant the eight-hour day, and that there should be a social legislation corresponding to the exigencies of the new times. And this is not because we recognise the importance of the proletariat. We look at the question from another point of view. We realise that there cannot be a great nation capable of doing great things if the working masses are constrained to live under brutalising conditions. It is necessary, then, that by preaching and practising the reconciliation of right and duty, which I call Mazinian, this enormous mass of tens of millions of people who work shall be raised to an ever higher level of life. Brothers, not enemies. It is absurd to depict us as the enemies of the working classes. We feel ourselves to be brothers in spirit of all of those who work. But we do not make distinctions, we do not put work-worn hands into the first rank. We do not place the new divinity, manual labour, upon the altar. For us, all work. The astronomer who in his observatory consults the trajectory of the stars, the lawyer, the archaeologist, the student of religion, and the artist, if they are increasing by their work the sum total of spiritual wealth which is at the disposal of mankind, we wish to see the realisation of a communion between spirit and matter, between the arm and the brain, the realisation of the solidarity of the race. Fascismo is then the blast of heresy which beats at the doors of all the churches and says to the old and more or less tearful priest, Get out of the way of these temples, which threaten ruin to you, for our triumphant heresy is destined to bring light to all brains and all souls. And we say to all men, great and small, upon the national political scene, make way for the youth of Italy, which wishes to affirm its faith and passion. And if you do not make way spontaneously, you will be overwhelmed in our universal punitive expedition, which is to collect all the free spirits of Italy and bind them together in a fascisio. Applause. We are now face to face with a fact, which is that of the elections. The chamber being old and more than old, worn out, the protagonists of this semi-tragedy being tired and misled, it is time to make that new appeal to the electors which is imperative. Do you not feel that if the elections of 1919 had the character of sabotage, the elections of 1921 will be definitely fascista? Do you not feel that the helm of state will never return to the old men of the old Italy? I received a message today on the strength of which I feel I can state that the difference, more or less artificially created, which existed between the defenders of Fiume, to whom we pay the homage of our gratitude, and us, her defenders at home, has no more raison d'etre. And this difference, which, rather than by the legionaries, was created by certain politicians who were not even in Fiume when it was attacked seriously, would be put an end to by Gabriele D'Annunzio. The day consecrated to fascismo. Another characteristic of fascismo is pride of nationality. 
And in connection with this, I am pleased to tell you that we have already decided the Fascista Day. If the Socialists have May Day, if the Popular Party have 15th May, and other parties other days, we Fascisti will have one too, and it shall be the day of the birth of Rome, 21st April. Upon that day, in token of the eternity of Rome, in memory of that city which gave two civilizations to the world and will give a third, we Fascisti will gather together, and the regional legions will file past in the Fascista order, which is neither military nor German, but simply Roman. We have abolished the procession and substitute this ancient form of manifestation, which imposes individual control on each participator and order and discipline upon all. For we wish to introduce strict national discipline, without which Italy cannot become the Mediterranean and world nation of which we dream. And those who blame us for marching like the Germans must remember that it is not we who imitate the Germans, but they who imitate the Romans, for which reason it is we who go back to the original, who return to the Roman style, the Latin and Mediterranean style. We have no prejudices, because we are not a church, we are a movement. We are not a party, we are a band of free men. If anyone is tired of being fascista, there are twenty shops, twenty churches at whose doors to knock and ask for hospitality. We have not institutions either, we consider them superfluous. Ours is an army characterised by enthusiasm and voluntary discipline, and known above all not in the light of guardian of some party or faction but as a guardian of the nation. We are known of the love we bear to Italy, to her history and her civilization, as well as to her inhabitants and geographical constitution. Yesterday, while the train carried me to Bologna, I felt myself in harmony with all things and all men. I felt bound to this earth. I felt myself an infinitesimal part of that great river which flows from the Alps to the Adriatic. I recognised my brothers in the peasants, those peasants with the grave attitudes of those who work the soil. I saw myself in the blue sky, which awakened my inextinguishable passion for flight. I recognised myself in all the aspects of nature and man. And a profound prayer arose in my heart. It is the prayer that every Italian should make, when the sunrise illumines the sky, and the twilight descends over the earth. We, Italians of the twentieth century, who have witnessed the great tragedy which has brought about the fulfilment of our nationality, we who carry in the depths of our souls the memory of the dead, who are our religion, we, citizens of Italy, shall make one oath, one single resolution, that we only shall be the modest but persevering builders of her present and future fortunes. Applause End of section 21. Section 22 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. The Italy we want within and her foreign relations. The four following speeches are undoubtedly the most important of this collection because they depict Mussolini as the polemic, the agitator, the warrior, the leader, travelling to his political maturity. In reading them, one recognises the condottiero, who is quite sure of himself, who is near the end of his march, and is certain of reaching his final goal. Except for a gradually accelerating rhythm, proportionate to the precipitation of events, the tone of the four speeches is almost the same. 
There was no pause, no perplexity, nothing which might induce the reader to think of a change of direction, of a truce, of the relinquishing of the struggle. But rather one notices the close march of a compact and well-equipped army, determined to struggle on and to win at whatever cost. At Udini, that strong old town, the sentinel of the country, dear to the heart of all Italian soldiers, the leader of Fascismo initiates the spiritual and physical mobilization of the black shirts, while he hurls the first challenge of the old political caste and lays down the fundamental points of the imminent national revolution. The speech which I intend to make today is going to be an exception to the rule which I have imposed upon myself of limiting my speeches as far as I can. Oh, if it were only possible to do as the poets advise and strangle the verbose, inconclusive oratory which has sidetracked us for so long. I am certain, or at any rate I hope, that you do not expect anything from me in a speech which is not eminently fascista, that is to say straightforward, hard, bare facts. The Unity of the Country Do not expect a commemoration of the 20th September. Certainly, the subject would be tempting and there would be ample material for reflection in re-examining by what prodigies of immeasurable force and through how many and how great sacrifices Italy has been able to achieve her not-yet-complete unity. I say not-yet-complete because perfect unity cannot be spoken of until Fiume and Dalmatia and the other territories have come back to us, thus fulfilling the proud dream which we carry in our hearts. Instead, I ask you to consider that throughout the Risorgimento, which began with the first attempt at rebellion on the part of a small section of a cavalry regiment at Nola and ended with the breach of Portopia in 70, two forces were brought into play. One, the traditional and conservative force, of necessity rather stationary and sluggish, the force of the Savoy and Piedmont tradition, the other, the rebellious and revolutionary force, which sprang from the best elements among the bourgeoisie especially. And it was only as the result of the reconciliation and balancing of these two forces that we were able to realise the unity of the country. Perhaps something of the sort can be found today, and of this I should go on to speak later. Rome Have you ever asked yourselves why the unity of the country is summed up in the symbol and name of Rome? We fascisti must forget the more or less ungrateful welcome we received at Rome in the October of last year. Otherwise, we would show ourselves to be mean-spirited, and we must have the courage to own that part of the responsibility for what happened belongs to us, on account of some elements among us which were not on the high level the situation required. And Rome must not be confused with the Romans, with those hundreds of so-called fugitives of fascismo which are to be found at Rome, Milan, and other centres in Italy, who effectively arouse harmful anti-fascist feeling in the country. But if Mazzini and Garibaldi tried three times to arrive at Rome, and if Garibaldi gave his red shirts the tragic and inexorable alternative of Rome or death, this means that, to the best men of the Risorgimento, Rome already had an essential function of the first importance to perform in the new history of the Italian nation. Let us then, with minds pure and free from animal city, lift up our thoughts towards Rome, which is one of the few spiritual cities which exist in the world. Because at Rome, among those seven hills so pregnant with history, occurred one of the greatest spiritual miracles which have ever taken place, 
that is, the transformation of an Eastern religion, not understood by us, into a universal one, and which has succeeded under another form to the empire that the Roman legions had carried to the extreme ends of the earth. And we want to make Rome the city of our ideals, a city cleaned and purified of all those elements which corrupt and defile her. We wish to make Rome the throbbing heart, the living spirit of the Italy of which we dream. Somebody might object, saying, Are you worthy of Rome? Are you capable of inheriting and transmitting the ideals and glories of an empire? And then surly critics busy themselves with trying to find signs of uncertainty in our young, exuberant organisation. Fascista discipline. People speak to us of fascista autonomy. I tell the fascisti and citizens that this autonomy has no importance whatsoever. It is not an autonomy of ideas and prejudice. Fascismo has no prejudices. They are the sad privilege of the old parties, associations scattered over all countries, whose members, having nothing better to do or to say, end by imitating those sordid priests of the East, who discussed all the questions of the world while the Byzantine Empire perished. The few and sporadic attempts on the part of fascisti to establish autonomy are either frustrated or nearly so, because they represent only revenge of a personal nature. We come to another question, discipline. I'm in favour of the most rigid discipline. We must first sternly discipline ourselves, otherwise we shall not have the right to discipline the nation. And it is only by the discipline of the nation that Italy can make itself heard in the councils of the other countries. Discipline must be accepted. If it is not, it must be imposed. We put aside the democratic dogma that one must forever proceed by sermonising and lecturing in a more or less liberal manner. At a given moment, discipline must show itself under the form of a command or an act of force. I exact discipline, and I do not speak to the men of the Friulian district who are, let me say, perfect as regards sobriety and correctness, austerity and quiet living, but I speak to the fascisti of all Italy who, if they must have a dogma, must have one which bears the clear name of discipline. Only by obedience, by the humble and sacred pride in obedience, can the right to command be conquered. And only when it is conquered can it be imposed upon others. Otherwise, no. The fascistivity must take note of this. They must not interpret discipline as a call to order of the administrative kind, or as the fear of shepherds who foresee the scattering of their flock. This cannot be because we are not shepherds, and our forces cannot be called by any means a flock. We are an army, and it is just because we have this special organisation that we must make discipline the supreme pivot of our life and action. Violence. I come now to the question of violence. Violence is not immoral. On the contrary, it is sometimes moral. We dispute the right of our enemies to bewail our violence because, compared with that which was committed in the unlucky years of 19 and 20, and with that of the Bolshevists in Russia, where two million people have been executed and another two million still pine in prison, our violence is child's play. On the other hand, violence is decisive, because at the end of July and August, after having made use of it systematically for 48 hours, we got results which should not have been obtained in 48 years of sermons and propaganda. When, therefore, violence removes a gangrene of this sort, it is morally sacred and necessary. 
But my fascista friends, and I speak to the fascista of all Italy, our violence must have certain fascista characteristics. The violence of ten to one is to be disowned and condemned. There is a violence that frees, and a violence that binds. There is moral violence, and stupid immoral violence. Violence must be proportionate to the necessities of the moment, and not made a school, a doctrine, or a sport. The fascisti must be careful not to spoil, with sporadic individual and unjustifiable acts of violence, the brilliant and splendid victories of August. This is what our enemies are waiting for. As a result of certain episodes, let us frankly admit disagreeable episodes, such as that at Toronto, they have been led to believe and to hope that violence has become a sort of second habit, and that when we no longer have a target upon which to practice, we shall turn against ourselves and against each other, or the nationalists. Now the nationalists differ from us on certain questions, but the truth is this, that in all the battles we have fought, we have had them by our side. It may well be that among them there are leaders who do not see fascismo, as we see it, but it must be recognised and proclaimed that the blue shirts, that is, the nationalists, at Genoa, Bologna and Milan and in another hundred centres, were with the black shirts. In consequence, the occurrence at Taranto was most displeasing, and I hope that the leaders of fascismo will act in such a way that it remains an isolated incident, to be forgotten in a local reconciliation and in a national manifestation of sympathy and solidarity. Our syndicalism. Another argument which raises the hopes of our enemies is the existence of the masses. You know that I do not worship the new divinity, the masses. It is a creation of democracy and socialism. Just because they are numerous, they must be right. Not a bit of it. The opposite has often proved to be true, that the masses are against the right. In any case, history proves that it has always been the minorities, a handful from the first, that have produced profound changes in human society. We do not adore the masses, even if they have got work-worn hands and brains. We shall bring instead, into our examination of social life, ideas and elements new at any rate in Italian circles. We could not turn away the masses, they came to us. Ought we to have received them with kicks on the shins? Are they sincere? Do they come to us as the result of conviction or fear, or because they hope to get from us what they fail to obtain from the socialists? These questions are really superfluous, as no one yet has found the way to penetrate into their inmost minds. We have, therefore, had to adopt syndicalism, and we are doing so. They say, your syndicalism will end by being in every way exactly like that of the socialists, and you will have, of necessity, to promote class war. The democracy, or a section of them, the section which does not seem to have any better object than stirring up the mud, continue from Rome, where they print too many papers, many of which do not represent anybody or anything, to work in this direction. But our syndicalism differs from that of the others, because we do not allow strikes in public services under any pretext, and we are in favour of cooperation among the classes, especially in a period like the present one of acute economic crisis. We try to make this conception penetrate the brains of our syndicates, but it must be made equally clear that the industrial workers and their employers must not blackmail us, because there is a limit which must not be passed. And these workers and their masters, the bourgeoisie in a word, must take into account that the nation also consists of the people, 
a mass which labours, and one cannot think of the greatness of the nation if this portion is restless and idle. The task of Ashismo is to make the people organically one with the nation, so that they may be ready tomorrow when the nation has need of them, as the artist takes this raw material in order to create his masterpiece. Only with the masses forming an intimate part of the life and history of the nation can we have a foreign policy. Foreign Policy And now I come to the subject which, at the present moment, is of the greatest positive importance. It is evident that, at the end of the war, it was not understood how to make peace. There were two alternatives, the peace of the sword and the peace of approximate justice. But, under the influence of a pernicious democratic mentality, the peace of the sword was not made by occupying Berlin, Vienna and Budapest. Neither has the approximate peace of justice been accomplished. Men, many of whom were ignorant of history and geography, and it seems that these famous experts who thus disarrange and rearrange the map of Europe at their will really know as little about it as their masters, have said, the moment the Turks give trouble to the English, we will suppress Turkey. But the moment that Italy, in order to become a Mediterranean power, ought to have the Adriatic as her inland gulf, we deny Italy her Adriatic rights. What is the result? The result is that this kind of treaty naturally falls to pieces before the others. But since everything depends upon the making up of these treaties, since they are all connected with each other, so the failure of the Treaty of Sèvres may possibly involve the failure of all the others. Moreover, if the position becomes more involved, you will see the indestructible Russian Cossack, who changes his name but not his nature, coming forward again. Who armed the Turkey of Kemal Pasha? France and Russia. Who may possibly arm Germany tomorrow? Russia. Considering what we aim at in our foreign policy, it is very fortunate that besides our national army of glorious tradition, there is the fascista army. Our ministers for foreign affairs ought to know how to play this card too, with the warning, be careful, Italy no longer follows a policy of renunciation and cowardice, cost what it may. So it has come about that while in other countries men are beginning to realise the force represented by Italian fascismo, in the field of foreign policy our ministers still remain in a yielding attitude. We are asked what is our programme. I have already answered this question, which was meant to be insidious, at a little meeting held at Levanto in the presence of thirty or forty fascisti, and I did not think that a little homely speech would have such a vast echo. Our programme, the crisis of the liberal state. Our programme is simple. We wish to govern Italy. They ask us for programmes, but there are already too many. It is not programmes that are wanting for the salvation of Italy, but men and willpower. There is not an Italian who does not think that he possesses the one sure method by which the most acute problems of our national life may be solved. But I think you all convinced that our political class is deficient. The crisis of the liberal state has proved it. We have made a splendid war from the point of view of collective and individual acts of heroism. From having been soldiers, the Italians in 1918 became warriors. I beg you to note the essential difference. But our political class carried on the war as if it had been work of ordinary administration. These men, whom we all know and whose very features are familiar to every one of us, now appear men of the past, ruined, tired and beaten. I do not deny in my absolute objectivity 
that this middle class, which might, with a worldwide title, be called Geolithian, has its merits. It certainly has. But today, when Italy is still under the influence of Vittoria Veneto, today, when Italy is bursting with life, vigour and passion, these men, who are above all accustomed to parliamentary mystification, do not appear to us to be big enough for the situation. It is necessary, therefore, to consider how to replace this political class, which has of late consistently surrendered to that swollen-headed puppet, Italian socialism. I think that this replacement has become necessary, and that the more complete it is, the better. Certainly, fascismo, in taking the entire 47 millions of Italians under its care, will assume a great responsibility. It is to be foreseen that many will be disappointed, because, in any case, there is always disappointment sooner or later, whether things are accomplished or not. Friends, like the life of the individual, the life of the nation brings with it a certain amount of risk. One cannot hope to run forever on the Decauville track of daily regularity. At a given moment, both men and parties must have the courage to shoulder heavy responsibility and to adopt a daring policy. They may succeed, they may fail. But there are also unsuccessful attempts that suffice to ennoble and uplift for all time the soul of a movement such as Italian fascismo. The question of regime, the monarchy and fascismo. I had intended to repeat the speech at Naples, but I think that I shall have other things to deal with there. Do not let us delay, therefore, about entering on the delicate subject of regime. Many of the controversies which were raised by the question of the nature of my tendencies are forgotten, and everybody is convinced that they were not formed suddenly, but represented a settled idea. It is always like that. Certain attitudes appear improvised to the general public, which is neither fitted nor obliged to follow the slow changes which take place in a restless spirit, desirous of making a profound examination of certain problems. But there is inward pain and toil, which is sometimes tragic. You must not think that the heads of fascismo do not know what this individual, and above all national, travail is. The much-talked-of Republican tendency had to be a kind of attempt at separation from the many elements which had come to us simply because we had won. These elements do not please us. These people who always side with the victor, and who are ready to change their flag with a change of fortune, must be looked upon with suspicion and carefully watched by the fascisti. Is it possible, here's the question, to bring about a profound transformation in our political regime and to create a new Italy without touching the monarchic system? What is the present attitude of the fascisti as regards political institutions? Our attitude does not commit us in any sense. In truth, perfect regimes are only to be found in books of philosophy. I think that it would have been disastrous for the Greek city if the theories of Plato had been literally applied. A people content under a republic never dreams of having a king. A people not accustomed to a republic longs to return to a monarchy. It was in vain that the Germans tried to make the Phrygian cap fit their square heads. The Germans hate a republic, and the fact that it was imposed by the Entente and that it had been a kind of ersatz is another reason for their hating it. So that, generally speaking, political forms cannot be approved of or condemned forever, but must be examined from the point of view of their direct relation with the mentality, their economic condition, and the spiritual force of any particular people. A voice cries, Long live Mazzini!
Now, I think that the regime can be largely modified without interfering with the monarchy. In reality, and I refer to the choir of my friend, the same Mazzini, Republican and advocate of Republicanism, did not consider his doctrines incompatible with the monarchic aspect of Italian unity. He resigned himself to it and accepted it. It was not his ideal, but the ideal cannot always be realised. We shall, then, leave the monarchic institution outside our field of action, which will have other great objects, because we think that a great part of Italy would regard with suspicion a change in the regime which was carried thus far. We should have regional separatism, perhaps, because it is always so. Today there are many indifferent to the monarchy, who tomorrow would be its supporters, and who would find highly respectable and sentimental reasons for attacking Fischismo, if it had dared to aim at this target. I do not think that the monarchy has really any object in opposing what must now be called the Fascista Revolution. It is not in its interest, because by doing so it would immediately make itself an object of attack, in which case we could not spare it, because it would be a question of life or death for us. Those who sympathise with us must not withdraw into the shade. They must stay in the light. They must have the courage to remain monarchists. The monarchy would represent the historical continuity of the nation, a splendid task, and one of incalculable importance. On the other hand, the fascista revolution must also avoid risking everything. Some firm ground must be left, so that the people shall not feel that everything is falling to pieces, that everything must be begun again, because in that case, the first wave of enthusiasm would be followed by a wave of panic. Now, everything is very plain. The social democratic superstructure must be destroyed. The state we want. We must have a state which will simply say the state does not represent a party. It represents the nation as a whole. It includes all, is over all, protects all, and fights any attempt made against her inviolable sovereignty. This is the state that must arise from the Italy of Vittorio Veneto, a state which does not acknowledge that the strongest power is right which is not like the liberal state, which after 50 years of life was unable to install the temporary printing press so as to issue its paper when there was a general strike of printers, a state which does not fall under the power of the socialists, which does not think that problems can be settled only from the political point of view, as machine guns do not suffice if there is not the spirit behind to keep them going. The whole armoury of the state falls to pieces like the old scenery in an operatic theatre, when it is not inspired by the most deep-rooted sense of the necessity of the fulfilment of duty, nay, of a mission. That is why we want to remove from the state all its economic attributes. We have had enough of the state railman, the state postman, and the state insurance official. We have had enough of the state administration at the expense of Italian taxpayers, which has done nothing but aggravate the exhausted financial condition of the country. It still controls the police, who protect honest men from the attacks of thieves, the masters responsible for the education of the rising generations, the army which must guarantee the inviolability of the country and our foreign policy. It must not be said that the state that shorn will remain very small, no, it will remain very great, because it will still have all the spiritual dominion, having given up only material power. Citizens, I have placed my ideas before you as a whole. It is enough, to my mind, for you to individualise them. To friends and enemies.
If this mentality of ours was not sufficient, there are our methods, there is our daily activity, which we do not mean to give up. The watching at the same time that it is not carried to extremes, that it does not overreach itself and so harm fascismo. But when I say these words, I say them with intention, because if fascismo was a movement like all the rest, the attitude of the individual or the group would have a relative importance. But blood has been shed for our movement, and this must be remembered when there are attempts at autonomy and lack of discipline. The recent dead must be thought of before all things. It must be remembered that such autonomy and lack of discipline serve to arouse the miserable instincts of the socialists, who, though subdued, still secretly hatch plots for revenge, a revenge which we shall prevent by collective action and the avoidance of bloodshed. After all, the Romans were really right. If you want peace, you must show yourself prepared for war. Those who are not prepared for war do not have peace, and are defeated into the bargain. So we say to all our enemies, it is not enough for you to go planting the tricolor all over the place. We wish to see you put to the proof. You will have a little while to undergo a sort of spiritual and political quarantine. Your leaders, who might again infect us, must be sent where they can do no harm. Only by thus avoiding the lure of the mistaken idea of quantity shall we succeed in saving the quality and the spirit of our movement, which is no ephemeral one, since it has already lasted four years, equal in this tempestuous century to forty. Our movement is still in its prehistoric period and in process of formation. Its real history begins tomorrow. All that fascismo has accomplished thus far has been negative. Now it must begin to reconstruct. In this way, its force, its spirit, and its nobility will appear. Friends, I am sure that the fascisti officers will do their duty. I am sure, too, that the men will do theirs. Before proceeding to the great task, we must make an inexorable selection from the rank and file. We cannot carry useless impedimenta. We are an army of velites with a rearguard of solid territorials. We do not wish to have untrustworthy elements amongst us. I salute Udine, this dear old Udine, to which I am bound by so many memories. Many generations of Italians, who were the flower of our race, have passed by its broad ways. Many of his young men now sleep their last sleep in the little isolated cemeteries of the Alps, or beside the Isonzo, now once again the sacred river of Italy. Men of Udine, fascisti, Italians, take upon yourselves the spirit of these our unforgettable dead, and make of it the burning emblem of our immortal country. Loud applause. This speech was delivered 20th September, 1922. End of section 22. Section 23 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 25th September, 1922. The Piave and Vittorio Veneto mark the beginning of New Italy. Speech delivered at Cremona, 25th September 1922. Before 40,000 contadini, set free from the social clerical yoke, who march past in military order and closely following battalions, the leader's eloquence is roused and elated, so that one seems to hear the very sound of joy bells ringing in his speech. Fasciste and workingmen of Cremona and the provinces, 
as so often happens reality has surpassed the most brilliant expectations your meeting fasciste of cremona is the most impressive that i have yet attended i have come among you to tell you how completely i am with you from your fine leader roberto farinacci to the last man in your ranks prolonged applause here in times long past great ideas were conceived this was the birthplace of democracy which had a period of glory before it became crippled and enfeebled by the influence of socialism and in spite of the profound differences of opinion which divided us after the war i must call to remembrance another noble figure of your fruitful land i speak of leonida bisolati frantic applause those who as the result of being led into false ideas by incorrect information talk about agrarian slavery ought to come here and see with their own eyes this crowd of genuine workers people with shoulders broad enough and arms strong enough to bear the weight of the increasing fortunes of the nation applause only the rabble could accuse us of being the enemies of the people for we are the sons of the people we have known what manual labor is we have always lived among the working classes who are infinitely superior to the false prophets who pretend to represent them unanimous and prolonged applause but just because we are the sons of the people we do not wish to deceive them we do not wish to mystify them or promise them the unattainable although we solemnly and formally pledge ourselves to protect them and to vindicate their just rights and their legitimate interests as i watched your procession passing disciplined ardent and exulting as i watched the little balilas who represent the still immature spring of life followed by the squadrons in the full flush of youth and finally the men in the vigor of manhood and even old men i said to myself that the series was complete since all phases of life from the first to the last were represented fasciste great tasks await us that which we have accomplished is nothing compared to that which awaits us there is already a strong and manifest contrast between the italy of the cowardly politicians and the vigorous healthy italy which is preparing to give the death blow to all inefficiency and egoism and to clear away the infected strata of the italian community loud applause and cries of rome rome our adversaries must not delude themselves they thought in the unfortunate year of nineteen nineteen when we here in cremona and all over italy were no more than a handful of men that fascismo would only be a passing phenomena fascismo has now been alive four years and it has tasks enough to fill a century nor must our enemies deceive themselves by thinking that they can break up our organization because we intend to make it more compact more solid better equipped against all emergencies since my friends if a decisive blow is necessary every man from the first to the last will do his exact duty in a word we want italy to become fascista clamorous applause that is simple and clear we want italy to become fascista because we are tired of seeing her governed by men whose principles are continually wavering between indifference and cowardice and above all we are tired of seeing her looked upon abroad as a negligible quantity what is that feeling which stirs you when you hear the song of the piave it is that the piave does not mark an end it marks a beginning hear hear it is from the piave it is from vittorio veneto it is from our victory even if it was mutilated by a mistaken diplomacy that our standards move on it was on the banks of the piave that the march was begun that cannot stop until rome is reached enthusiastic applause 
and there are no obstacles either of men or things that can prevent us from arriving there i wish to thank you fascisti of cremona and people of this city for your reception i know and like to think that it is not to me personally that you pay this honor but to the ideal our cause which has been sanctified by so much bloodshed by the flower of italian youth in embracing my old friend Parinacci, i mean to embrace all the fascisti of cremona to the cry of long live italy long live fascismo enthusiastic applause End of section 23. Section 24 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 24. 6 October 1922. The fascist dawning of New Italy. Speech delivered at Milan at the Chiesa on 6 October 1922. At the seat of the local fascista group, Antonio Chiesa. Mussolini pays his tribute to the memory of her two dead who fell, as Garibaldi fell, during the days of August, and then devotes himself to the analysis of a well-matured plan, strategic and tactical, for the coming battle. I agreed to come and speak to the Chiesa group this evening for three reasons. First, sentimental. Second, personal. And third, political. For the sentimental reason, because I wish to pay the tribute of my admiration and profound devotion to our unforgettable and magnificent fallen, Maloney, Tonoli, and Crispy, the first two of your squad and the last of the Solro. I remember them perfectly. Then I agreed also because of the way in which this group has interpreted this meeting. Lastly, in view of the general attitude of suspense all over Italy at this moment, I did not wish to let the opportunity slip for defining certain points, a definition which is necessary in these difficult times through which we are passing. You feel, to judge from your silent and austere bearing, that if the flesh is corruptible, the spirit is immortal. You feel that here in this little hall this evening, the spirits of our fallen are still with us. We feel their presence, because the soul cannot die and they fell in the most heroic action yet accomplished by the fascismo in the four years of its history. Many times when the fascisti have gone forth to destroy with fire and sword the haunts of the cowardly social communist delinquents, they have only seen the backs of the flying enemy. But the members of the Chiesa squad and the two fallen whom we remember, and all the squadrons of the Milanese fascio, went to the assault of the officers of the Avanti as they would have attacked an Austrian trench. They had to scale the walls, break through barbed wire, burst open doors, and face the leaden hail which the enemy poured forth from their weapons. This is heroism. This is violence. This is the violence of which I approve and which I uphold, and which Fascismo and I speak to the fascisti of all Italy ought to make hers. Not little individual sporadic acts of violence, but the great, wonderful, relentless violence of the decisive hour. It is necessary, when the moment comes, to strike with the utmost decision and without pity. You must not think that I wish to hide the very strong sympathy I have for the Milanese fascio, because my love, above all, is for the cause. When a cause has been sanctified by so much pure young blood, it must not, at any cost, become defiled in any way. Our friends have been heroes. Their action has been that of warriors. Their violence, saintly and moral. We exalt them. We remember them. And we will avenge them. 
We cannot accept the humanitarian, Tolstoyan moral standard, the moral standard of slavery. In times of war we adopt the formula of Socrates, overcome friends with kindness, overcome enemies with evil. Nation and State Our line of conduct is perfectly correct. Those who do good to us will have good. Those who do ill, ill. Our enemies cannot complain. If being such, they are treated hardly, as enemies must be treated. We are in an historical period of crisis which every day becomes more acute. The general strike which was averted by the sacrifice of blood of the fascisti was an episode in this crisis. Dissension lies between the state and the nation. Italy is not a state, she is a nation, because from the Alps to Sicily there is fundamental unity of our race, our customs, our language and our religion. The war fought from 1915 to 1918 consecrates this unity, and if this is enough to characterise the nation, the Italian nation exists, full of power and resource and empowered towards a glorious destiny. But the nation must create for itself the state. And there is no state. Today the paper which represents liberalism in Italy, the paper with the largest circulation and which for this reason, by upholding absurd arguments, has done a great deal of harm at times, stated that there are two governments in Italy, and if there are two, there is one too many. There is the liberal government and the fascista government, the state of today and the state of tomorrow. Wanted a government, said the Corriere della Sera. We agree, a government is wanted. The lesson of two episodes. Two occurrences during these last days. One characteristic of our activity in the cause of humanity, the other of our activity in the cause of national rights, have proved the superiority of fascista over the liberal state and have shown that fascismo is capable and worthy to succeed that state. At San Terenzo of Spezia, if all the dead were buried and the wounded taken to the hospital, if the country was cleared of debris and the furniture and belongings safeguarded from the base attempts of human jackals, if the soldiers had their supplies in good time, it was by the activity of the fascista state. And the mayor of Larici, who is not a fascista, telegraphed his great gratitude, not to the prime minister, but to us, as you learnt in the Popolo d'Italia. This is a question of mercy, humanity, and national solidarity. Let us transfer our attention to Bolzano. Here it is a question of our rights in the Italian law. Who stood up for those rights and imposed the Italian nationality in a city which ought to be Italian? Fascismo. Who banished Perathona, who for five years held in check five Italian ministers? Fascismo. It has been fascismo that has given a school and a church to the Italians in Upper Adage, and inspired them with the sense of their own dignity. Who placed the bust of the king in the council hall? The fascisti. The Germans are astonished at seeing before them all these young fascisti, splendid physically and morally. Inhabiting as they do without right our Italian soil, they seem to wonder, what Italy is this? And we answer, by the action of the defeatist ministers and as a result of the unfortunate peace, you Germans are accustomed to the Italy of Abigarina. Now you must accustom yourselves to the Italy of Vittorio Veneto, which has force and energy, and which says, We are at the Brenner, and there we mean to stay. We do not wish to go to Innsbruck, but do not imagine that Germany and Austria can ever return to Bolzano. This is the fascista state which reveals itself to Italian eyes in two typical moments of everyday history. 
the disaster of San Terenzo and the occupation of Bolzano. For the Italy of tomorrow, the citizens wonder which state will end by dictating its law upon the nation. We have no hesitation in answering that it will be the fascista state. The Corriere della Sera says that something must be done quickly, and we agree. A nation cannot live nursing in its bosom two states, two governments, one in action and the other in power. But what is the way to give the nation a government? I say government, because when we say state we mean something more. We mean the spirit and not merely the inert and transitory form. There are two ways, gentlemen. If the whole of Rome was not suffering from softening of the brain, they would summon Parliament at the beginning of November, and having passed the bill for electoral reform, make an appeal to the electors in December. Because the crisis for which the Corriere asked could not alter the situation. Thirty crises in the Italian Parliament as it is today would mean thirty reincarnations of Senor Factor. If the government does not follow this path, gentlemen, we shall be obliged to take the other, you see, our tactics are now clear. When it is a question of assaulting the state, it is no longer possible to have recourse to little plots, of which the to be or not to be remains a secret to the last. We must give orders to hundreds and thousands of men, and it would be merely absurd to try to keep it secret. We play an open game. We leave our cards on the table until it is necessary to lift them, and we say, There is an Italy which you liberal leaders no longer understand. You do not understand it because your mind works on old-fashioned lines. You do not understand it because parliamentary policy has killed your spirit. The Italy which has come from the trenches is strong and full of life. Fascismo, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It is an Italy which deserves to begin a new period of history. There exists, therefore, a dramatic contrast between the Italy of yesterday and our Italy. The conflict appears inevitable. It is a question now of developing our forces, summoning all our energies and strength, so that the conflict shall end in victory for us, and, as a matter of fact, upon that score there can be no doubt. Now the liberal state is a mass behind which there is no face. It is a scaffolding behind which there is no building. There is force, but there is no spirit behind them. All those who ought to uphold it feel that it is approaching the extreme limits of incompetence, impotence and absurdity. On the other hand, as I said at Udine, we do not wish to stake everything on the game, because we do not present ourselves as the saviours of humanity, nor do we promise anything special to the people. We may even impose greater discipline and more sacrifices upon them, and we shall make no difference between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, because there is an infected proletariat, just as there is a bourgeoisie still more infected. There is a part of the proletariat that must be chastised in order that it may be redeemed afterwards, and there is a part of the middle class which detests us and tries to throw our lines into confusion, which finances anti-fascista slander, which has hitherto ignobly courted the anti-national forces, and for which I do not feel one ounce of pity. We are surrounded by enemies, and those who are our open foes, and who belong to the Bolshevist parties, have now perfected themselves in the art of ambush and assassination. A warning. But there are other insidious enemies who try to harm fascism under cover of the tricolor and other similar emblems who try to insinuate themselves into our movement and to create some alacra of organisations in order to weaken us, just at the time when it is most necessary for us to remain united. 
Now I must say that if we do not have mercy upon those who attack us from behind hedges, neither shall we have mercy upon those who attack us thus insidiously. When the clock of history strikes the hours, we must speak as the peasants do, simply, sincerely, and loyally. We have no great obstacles to overcome, as the nation is waiting for us. The nation hopes in us and feels itself represented in us. Certainly we cannot promise to plant the tree of liberty in the squares. We cannot give liberty to those who would profit by it to assassinate us. The short-sightedness of the free state lies in this, that it gives freedom to all, including those who use this freedom to overthrow it. We shall not give this universal liberty, not even if it assumes the garb of immortal principles. Finally, it is not electoral subterfuges which divide us from democracy. If people wish to vote, let them vote. Let us all vote until we are sick of it. Nobody wants to suppress universal suffrage. Policy needed. But we shall carry out a severe and reactionary policy. We are not afraid of doing so. If the representative organs of democracy say that we are reactionary, it does not offend us. Because what distinguishes us from Democrats is mentality and spirit. History does not follow a given itinerary. It is made up of contrasts and all kinds of vicissitudes. There are no centuries which are all light and no centuries which are all darkness. It is not possible to transport fascismo out of Italy, as Bolshevism has been transported out of Russia. The Italians can be divided into three categories. The indifferent, who will stay at home. The sympathetic, who will have freedom of movement. And the antagonistic, who will have their freedom restricted. We shall make no promises. We shall not give ourselves out as missionaries who bring the revealed truth. But I do not think that our enemies will place serious obstacles in our way. Bolshevism is defeated. Look at the Congress of Rome. What a pitiful sight. When the leader of a Congress behaves like the lawyer of Bustow, then you understand that we are upon the bottom rung of the ladder. There was one socialism, today there are four, and there is a tendency towards further divisions. And not only this, but each of these divisions claims to represent the authentic party. It is no wonder that the proletariat scatters, discouraged and disgusted by the attitude of socialism. As I have already said, the day of socialism is not only past as a party, its philosophies and doctrines no longer stand. The Italians and the Western peoples in general must burst with logical criticism the grotesque bubble of international socialism. Perhaps, looking at things from a historical point of view, it is a struggle between the East and the West, between the chaotic, fatalistic East, look at Russia, and us, we the people of the West, who cannot be carried away by fights of metaphysics and require hard concrete realities. Let us flee from imitations. Italians cannot be mystified for long by Asiatic doctrines, which are absurd and criminal in their practical application. This is the essence of Italian fascismo, which represents a reaction against the Democrats who would have made everything mediocre and uniform and tried every way to conceal and to render transitory the authority of the state. From the supreme head to the last usher in the law courts, consequently everybody from the king to the lowest official has suffered from this false conception of life. Democracy thought to make itself indispensable to the masses, and did not understand that the masses despise those who have not the courage to be what they ought to be. Democracy has taken elegance from the lives of the people, but fascismo brings it back. That is to say, it brings back colour, force, picturesqueness, the unexpected, 
mysticism, and in fact, all that counts in the souls of the multitude. We play upon every chord of the lyre, from violence to religion, from art to politics. We are politicians and we are warriors. We are syndicalists and we also fight battles in the streets and the squares. That is fascismo, as it was conceived at Milan, and as it was and is realised. And, my friends, we must maintain this privilege, and fascismo must be kept up to this level of strength and wisdom. We must not abandon ourselves to imitations, because that which is possible in a particular agricultural region in a given time and place is not possible here in Milan. Here the situation has been dominated more by the spontaneous maturing of events than by men's violence or by circumstances. Here our domination becomes more and more decided. But, my friends, we must prepare ourselves with hearts free from preoccupation for the tasks which await us. Tomorrow it is probable, almost certain, that the formidable burden of the direction of a modern state will be on our shoulders. And it will be on the shoulders not only of a few men, it will be on the shoulders of the whole of fascismo, towards a more glorious destiny. And millions of eyes, many of them malicious, and millions of men, many of them beyond our frontiers, will be looking at us. They will want to see how we are organised, how justice is administered in the fascista state, how honest people are protected, how we deal with the problems of the school and the army. And the wrongdoing of any man, his error and his shame, will react upon the whole organisation of the state, and of necessity upon the fascismo. Have you, my friends, realised how formidable it is the task which awaits you? Are you spiritually prepared for it? Do you think that enthusiasm alone is enough? Because it is not enough. It is necessary because it is a primitive and fundamental force in human nature. It is impossible to do anything not inspired by intense passion or religious mysticism. But that is not enough. Together with these must work the reasoning forces of the brain. I think that in the case of a general crisis, fascismo would have all that was necessary to impose itself and to govern, not according to the ideas of demagogism, but according to the ideas of justice, and then, by ruling the nation well, by leading her towards a more glorious destiny, by conciliating the interest of all classes without increasing the hatred of one and the selfishness of another, by uniting the Italian people to face the world task, by fulfilling with patience this hard encyclopedian task, we shall inaugurate, thus, a really great period in Italian history. Thus will our dead be made immortal, and their names written in the gold book of fascista aristocracy. We shall point them out to the rising generation, to the children who are growing up and who represent the eternal spring of life. We shall say, great was the effort and hard the sacrifice, and pure was the blood that was shed and it was not shed to safeguard the interests of individuals, class or caste. It was not shed in the name of materialism. It was shed in the name of an ideal, of all that is most noble, beautiful and generous in the human soul. With the example of our dear before you, I ask you to remember to be worthy of their sacrifice, and to examine daily your own activity. Friends, I have faith in you. You have faith in me. In this mutual trust is the guarantee and certainty of our victory. Long live Italy, long live fascismo, honour and glory to the martyrs of our cause. Loud applause. End of section 24. Section 25 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches.
Section 25. 26th October 1922. The moment has arrived when the arrow must leave the bow or the cord will break. Speech delivered at Naples, 26th October 1922. At this, the final stage of the pilgrimage of the ever-swelling ranks of Italian youth, where the first trenches dug in preparation for the imminent assault of the black shirts, Mussolini in the morning, as politician, hurls his vehement reproach against the three black souls, the ministerial exponents of anti-fascista reaction. In the afternoon he shows himself in the guise of a warrior, and, wearing the colours of Rome on his breast, contemplates thoughtfully his 50,000 faithful crusaders in Piazza Plebiscito, who shout with one insistent voice, To Rome, to Rome. Fascisti and citizens, it may be, or rather it is almost certain, that my eloquence will disappoint you, accustomed as you are to the impetuosity and rich imagery of your own orators. But since I realise my incapacity for rhetoric, I have decided to limit myself, when speaking, to plain necessity. We have gathered together here at Naples from every part of Italy to perform an act of brotherhood and love. We have with us our brothers from the borderland of betrayed Dalmatia, men who do not mean to yield. Applause and cries of long live Italian Dalmatia. There are also the fascisti from Trieste, Istria and Venezia Tridentina, fascisti from all parts of northern Italy, even from the islands, from Sicily and Sardinia, all come together to affirm quietly and positively the indestructibility of our united faith which means to oppose strongly every more or less mass attempt at autonomy or separatism. Four years ago the Italian infantry, made great through twenty years of work and hardship, the Italian infantry in which the sons of your country were so largely represented, burst from the Piave and, having defeated the Austrians, surged on towards the Isonzo, and only the foolish democratic conception of the war prevented our victorious battalions from marching through the streets of Vienna and the highways of Budapest. Applause. From Rome to Naples. A year ago at Rome, at one time, we found ourselves surrounded by a secret hostility, which had its origin in the misunderstandings and infamies characteristic of the uncertain political world of the capital. Hear, hear. We have not forgotten all of this. Today we are happy that all Naples, the city which I call the big safety reserve of the nation, applause, welcomes us with a sincere and frank enthusiasm, which does our hearts good, both as men and Italians. For this reason I request that not the smallest incident of any kind shall disturb this meeting, for that would be a mistake, and a foolish one. I demand also, as soon as the meeting is over, that every fascista not belonging to Naples shall leave the town immediately. All Italy is watching this meeting, because, and let me say this without false modesty, there is not a post-war phenomenon of greater interest and originality in Europe or the world than Italian fascismo. You certainly cannot expect from me what is usually called a big speech. I made one at Udine, another at Cremona, a third at Milan, and I am almost ashamed to speak again. But in view of the extremely grave situation in which we find ourselves today, I consider this an appropriate opportunity to establish the difficult points of the problem in order that individual responsibilities may be settled. 
The moment has arrived, in fact, when the arrow must leave the bow, or the cord, too far stretched, will break. Applause. The Solving of the Problem You remember that my friend Lupi and I placed before the chamber the alternatives of this dilemma, which is not only fascista but also national, that is to say, legality or illegality, parliamentary conquest or revolution. By which means is fascismo to become the state? For we wish to become the state. Well, by 3rd October I had already settled the question. When I asked for the elections, when I asked that they shall take place soon and be regulated by reformed electoral law, it is clear to everyone that I have chosen my path. The very urgency of my request shows that the tension of my spirit has arrived at breaking point. To have or not to have. Understood this means to hold, or not to hold, the key to the solution of the whole Italian political crisis. The request came from me, but it also came from a party consisting of a formidably organised mass, which includes the rising generations in Italy and all the best, physically and morally, of the youth of the country, and from a party too, which had a tremendous following among the vague and unstable public. But, gentlemen, there is more. This request was made upon the morrow of the incidents of Bolzano and Trento, which had made plain to all eyes the complete paralysis of the Italian state, and revealed at the same time the no less complete efficiency of the fascista state. Well, in spite of all this, the inadequate government at Rome puts the question on the footing of public safety and public order. What we have asked the government... The whole question has been approached in a fatally mistaken manner. Politicians ask what we want. We are not people who beat about the bush. We speak clearly. We do good to those who do good to us, and evil to those who do evil. What do we want? Fascisti? We have answered quite simply. The dissolution of the present chamber, electoral reform, and elections within a short time from now. We have demanded that the state shall abandon the ridiculous neutral position that it occupies between the national and the anti-national forces. We have asked for severe financial measures and the postponement of the evacuation of the third Dalmatic zone. We have asked for fire portfolios as well as for the commission of aviation. We have, in fact, asked for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the War Office, the Admiralty, the Ministries of Labour and of Public Works. I am sure none of you will find our request excessive, but to complete the picture, I will add that I shall not take part with the government in this legal solution of the problem, and the reason is obvious, when you remember that to keep fascismo still under my control, I must of necessity have an unrestricted sphere of action, both for journalistic and polemic purposes. A ridiculous answer. And what has been the government's reply? Nothing. No. Worse than that. It is given a ridiculous answer. In spite of everything, not one of the politicians has known how to pass the threshold of Montecitrio in order to look the problem of the country in the face. A miserable calculation of our strength has been made. There has been talks of ministers without portfolios. As if this, after the more or less miserable experiences of the war, was not the culmination of human and political absurdity. There has been talk of sub-portfolios, too. But that is simply laughable. We fascisti do not intend to arrive at government by the window. 
We do not intend to give up this magnificent spiritual birthright for a miserable mess of ministerial potage. Loud and prolonged applause. Because we have what might be called the historical vision of the question as opposed to the merely political and parliamentary view. It is not a question of patching together a government with a certain amount of life, but of including in the liberal state, which has accomplished a considerable task which we shall not forget. All the forces of the rising generation of Italians which issued victorious from the war. This is essential to the welfare of the state, and not of the state only, but to the history of the nation. And then, a question of strength. Then, gentlemen, the question not being understood within its historical limits asserts itself and becomes a question of strength. As a matter of fact, at turning points of history force always decides when it is a question of opposing interests and ideas. This is why we have gathered firmly organised and strongly disciplined our legions, because thus, if the question must be settled by a recourse to force, we shall win. We are worthy of it. It is the right and duty of the Italian people to liberate their political and spiritual life from the parasitic incrustation of the past, which cannot be prolonged indefinitely in the present, as it would mean the death of the future. Applause. It is then quite natural that the government at Rome should try to divert and counteract the movement, that it should try to break up the fascista organisation and to surround us with problems. These problems have the name of the monarchy, the army, and pacification. The acceptance of the monarchy. I have already said that the discussion, abstract or concrete, of the good and evil of the monarchy as an institution is perfectly absurd. Every people in every epoch of history, given the time, place and conditions necessary, has had its regime. There is no doubt that the unity of Italy is soundly based upon the House of Savoy. Loud applause. There is equally no doubt that the Italian monarchy, both by reason of its origin, development and history, cannot put itself in opposition to the new national forces. It did not manifest any opposition upon the occasion of the concession of the Charter, nor when the Italian people, who, even if they were a minority, were a determined and intelligent minority, asked and obtained their country's participation in the war. Would it then have reason to be in opposition today? when fascismo does not intend to attack the regime, but rather to free it from all those superstructures that overshadow its historical position and limit the expansion of our national spirit. Our enemies in vain try to keep this alleged misunderstanding alive. Fascismo and Democracy The Parliament, gentlemen, and all the paraphernalia of democracy have nothing in common with the monarchy, not only this, but neither do we want to take away the people's toy, the Parliament. We say toy because a great part of the people seem to think of it in this way. Can you tell me else why, out of 11 millions of voters, 6 millions do not trouble themselves to vote? It might be, however, that if tomorrow you took their toy away from them, they would be aggrieved. But we will not take it away. After all, it is our mentality and our methods that distinguish us from democracy. Democracy thinks that principles are unchangeable when they can be applied at any time or in any place and situation. We do not believe that history repeats itself, that it follows a given path. That after democracy must come super-democracy. 
If democracy had its uses and served the nation in the 19th century, it may be that some other political form would be best for the welfare of the nation in the 20th. Well said. So that not even fear of our anti-democratic policy can influence the decision in favour of that continuity of which I spoke just now. The Army As regards the other institution in which the regime is personified, the Army, the Army knows that when the Ministry advised the officers to go about in civilian clothes to escape attack, we, then a mere handful of bold spirits, forbade it. Prolonged applause. We have created our ideal. It is faith and ardent love. It is not necessary for it to be brought into the sphere of reality. It is reality insofar as it is a stimulus for faith, hope and courage. Our ideal is the nation. Our ideal is the greatness of the nation and we subordinate all the rest to this. For us the nation has a soul and does not consist only in so much territory. There are nations that have had immense possessions and have left no traces in the history of humanity in spite of them. It is not only size that counts, because, on the other hand, there have been tiny, microscopic states that have left indelible marks in the history of art and philosophy. The greatness of a nation lies in the aggregation of all these virtues and all these conditions. A nation is great when its spiritual force is transferred into reality. Rome was great when, from her small rural democracy, little by little, her influence spread over the whole of Italy. Then she met the warriors of Carthage and fought them. It was one of the first wars in history. Then, bit by bit, she extended the dominion of the eagle to the furthermost boundaries of the known world, but still, as ever, the Roman Empire is a creation of the spirit, as it was the spirit which first inspired the Roman legions to fight. Applause. Our syndicalism. What we want now is the greatness of the nation, both materially and spiritually. That is why we have become syndicalists, and not because we think that the masses by reason of their number can create in history something which will last. These myths of the lower kind of socialist literature we reject. But the working people form a part of the nation, and they are a great part of the nation necessary to its existence both in peace and in war. They neither can nor ought to be repulsed. They can and must be educated and their legitimate interests protected. Applause. We ask them, do you wish the state of civil war to continue to disturb the country? No, for we are the first to suffer from the ceaseless Sunday wrangling with its list of dead and wounded. I was the first to try to bridge over the gap which exists between us and what is called the Italian Bolshevist world. How peace can be obtained. To prove this, I have just recently signed an agreement most gladly. In the first place because it was Gabriel D'Annunzio who asked me to, and in the second place because it was, as I thought, another step towards a national peace. But we are no hysterical women who continually worry themselves by thinking of what might happen. We have not the catastrophic, apocalyptic view of history. The financial problem which is so much talked about is a question of willpower. Millions and millions would be saved if there were men in the government who had the courage to say no to the different requests. But until the financial question is brought onto a political basis, it will not be solved. We are all for pacification 
and we should like to see all Italians find the common ground upon which it is possible for them to live together in a civilized way. But, on the other hand, we cannot give up our rights and the interests and the future of the nation for the sake of measures of pacification that we propose with loyalty but which are not accepted in the same spirit by the other side. We are at peace with those who ask for peace, but for those who ensnare us and above all ensnare the nation, there can be no peace until after victory. A Hymn to the Queen of the Mediterranean And now, Fascisti and citizens of Naples, I thank you for the attention with which you have listened to me. Naples gives a fine display of strength, discipline and austerity. It was a happy idea that led to our coming here from all parts of Italy, that has allowed us to see you as you are, to see your people who face the struggle for life like Romans, and who, with the desire to rebuild their lives and to gain wealth through hard work, carry ever in their hearts the love of this their wonderful town, which is destined to a great future, especially if fascismo does not deviate from its path. Nor must the Democrats say that there is no need for fascismo here, as there has been no Bolshevism, for here there are other political movements no less dangerous than Bolshevism, and no less likely to hinder the development of the public conscience. I already see the Naples of the future endowed with an even greater splendour as the metropolis of the Mediterranean, and I see it together with Bari, which in 1805 had 16,000 inhabitants and now has 150,000, and Palermo, forming a powerful triangle, and I see fascismo concentrating all these energies, purifying certain circles and removing certain members of society, gathering others under its standards. And now, members of the Fagio of all Italy, lift up your flags and salute Naples, the capital of southern Italy and the queen of the Mediterranean. End of section 25 Section 26 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches Section 26 Part 5 Mussolini the Fascista Member of Parliament 21st June 1921 Fascismo and the New Provinces Speech delivered in the Chamber, 21st June 1921 Honourable Mussolini I am not displeased, gentlemen, to make my speech from the benches of the extreme right, where formerly no one dared to sit. I may say at once, with the supreme contempt I have for all nominalism, that I shall adopt a reactionary line throughout my speech, which will be... I do not know how parliamentary in form, but anti-socialist and anti-democratic in substance. Approval. In spite of this, I am audacious enough to affirm that I shall be listened to with advantage by all sections of the chamber. In the first place, by the government, which will notice our position with regard to it. In the second place, by the socialists, who, after seven years of changing fortunes, see before them, in the proud attitude of a heretic, the man they excommunicated from the Orthodox Church. They will listen to me, too, because having held their fortunes in the palm of my hand for two years, there may still be some secret longings for me in the depths of their hearts. I may also be listened to with interest by the popular party and the other groups and sections. In fact, since I hope to define some political aspects, and I may add some historical ones, of this extremely powerful and complicated movement fascismo, 
perhaps what I have to say may have political consequences worthy of note. I beg you not to interrupt me, because I shall never interrupt anybody, and I add that from this moment I shall make sparing use of my freedom of speech in this assembly. And now to the argument. Italophobia on the Upper Adige In the speech from the throne, the Honourable Giolitti made the Sovereign say that the barrier of the Alps was entirely in our hands. I dispute the geographical and political exactness of this statement. We have not yet, at a few kilometres from Milan, the barrier of the Alps as the defence of Lombardy and the Valley of the Po. I am touching on a delicate subject, but it is well known both in this chamber and elsewhere that in the canton Ticino, which is being Germanized and bastardized, there is springing up a nationalist vanguard whom the fascisti look on with favour. What is the present government doing to defend the Alpine barrier of the Brenner and the Navoso? Its policy as regards the Upper Rhodesia is simply lamentable and, though its representatives would doubtless be extremely capable of running a kindergarten, I absolutely deny that they have the necessary qualifications for governing a region where several languages are spoken and the rivalry between the races is very bitter. The governor of Venezia Tridentina, for instance, has made a present of the constituency of Gorizia to the Slovaks and of four German deputies to the Italian chamber, while the other belongs to that category of more or less respectable people who are slaves to one so-called immortal principle, which consists in maintaining that there is only one form of good government in the world, and that it is applicable to all peoples at all times in all quarters of the globe. Allow me to put before the chamber the results of a few personal inquiries I have made into the situation on the Upper Adige. The political anti-Italian movement on the Upper Adige is monopolised by the Deutsche Verbrand, an offspring of the Andreas Hofferband, which has its centre at Munich and claims that the German frontier is not at the pass of Salorno, but at the burn clause of Chiusa de Verona. Now the representative of whom I have just spoken is responsible for this German propaganda, because he has written the preface to a book which states that the natural boundaries of Germany are at the foot of the Alps toward the valley of the Po. In the first days of the military occupation, immediately after the armistice, this italophobia was not possible. But when, by a great misfortune, this governor was appointed, the attitude of the people changed immediately, and the submission previously shown was succeeded by an insolent arrogance which denied the Austrian reverses and kept alive the desire for the return of the Habsburgs. At the sample fair organised by the Chamber of Commerce of Bolzano, a nest of pangaminism, all Italian firms were excluded, so much so that the invitations were issued in German, and a Bavarian band played for the whole duration of the fair. I come now to the events of 24th April, when a fascista bomb, justly administered by way of reprisal, and for which I take upon myself the moral responsibility. Loud applause and comments. Mark the limit to which fascismo intended that the German movement should go. The demonstration of 24th April in the Tyrol was only a simultaneous manifestation to the plebiscite which had been summoned that day beyond the Brenner, because the Germans in the Upper Adige resort to these subtle tricks of making the same manifestations under different guises. In this way, when they publicly mourned the loss of the Upper Adige on the side of the Brenner, on the other they did the same for the fallen Austrian soldiers. When the fascisti presented themselves at Bolzano, they found the police helmeted and tasseled, and when they were arrested, the inquiry was entrusted to Count Breitenberg, a notorious member of the Deutsche Verband. 
I will not linger over the cases of Malmeter, because they are more like the chapters of a novel, but I cannot help mentioning one most curious episode. The Commissioner of Murano went to the commune of Maya Alta and was received, not in the town hall, but in an old mansion house, where were gathered the mayor and the councillors. The Commissioner read the form of the oath, and the mayor and the councillors, sitting down immediately, put on their hats and burst out laughing. The Commissioner had hardly recovered from his surprise when the mayor rose to his feet and began a storm of abuse against the king. Italy and the Commissioner, who, returning to Murano, requested the dismissal of this council. But the Deutsche Verband interceded with the Governor, who returned the Commissioner's report, writing at the same time that it was not a good thing to practice irredentism. And the representatives of the Commune remained as they were. Since the period of mismanagement, the Upper Redige is no longer bilingual. The mayor himself refused to accept the evidence he had asked for concerning the events of 24th April, because they were written in Italian. These are small individual cases, but they serve to give an idea of the whole situation. At McGray, the Italofo president of the Young Catholics Club turned out two young men because they presented their demands in Italian, saying that the language would not do for his office and telling them to keep it for themselves. And among all those competing for the office of President of the Court of Appeal of Redeemed Italian Trento, the one selected was a man who in 1915 had resigned his magistracy in order to receive as a Kaiser Jaeger, volunteer under the Austrian flag. Today this man administers justice in the name of Italy. Comments If you imagine that the postal and telegraphic services in the Upper Rhodesia are in Italian hands, you are much mistaken. The Deutsche Verbound has control of all the communications and disposes of them at its pleasure. Although 24th April was a holiday, the Pangamans and the heads of the movement at Innsbruck were kept informed all along the development of events at Bolzano, while all communications with the civil and military authorities were cut and the town completely isolated from Trento and the rest of Italy for 24 hours. This is the situation. What the fascisti asks as regards the Aperidige. Gentlemen of the government, as regards the Upper Adige, we ask you for these immediate measures. 1. The abolition of everything which reminds us of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, even in outward form. Because I wish to say to the House that it is useless to make compacts to prevent the return of the Habsburgs with the Austrian heirs, who are more Austrian than Austria, when we leave a great part of Austria intact within our own borders. 2. The dissolution of the Deutsche Verband. 3. The immediate dismissal of the two Italian governors. 4. The formation of a united province of Trento with the administration at Trento, and the strictest observance of the use of the two languages in every act of public administration. I do not know what measures will be adopted by the government in these cases, but I hereby declare, and I do so before the four German deputies, that they may repeat it, and make it known beyond the Brenner, that there we are, and there we mean to stay, at all costs. Applause. Giolitti, Prime Minister and Minister of the Interior. Upon this we are all agreed. Applause. Mussolini. I note with pleasure the explicit declaration the Prime Minister has just made. End of section 26. Section 27 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 21st June, 1921. The question of Montenegro's independence. 
the honorable mussolini what is going to be our line of policy in view of the vast field for disagreement which has been left by the peace treaty or rather peace treaties all over the world i shall not touch upon the quarrel between greece and turkey although inconceivable complications may result if it is true as it is said that lenin is an ally of kamal pasha and has already dispatched the advance guard of the red army to asia minor neither shall i speak of upper silesia as i have not yet succeeded in defining the attitude of the government on this question egypt again i shall leave untouched but i cannot hold my peace about the fate prepared for montenegro how is it that montenegro has lost her independence in theory she has not lost it but actually she lost it in october nineteen eighteen and yet count sforza said the independence of montenegro was completely guaranteed first by the treaty of london of nineteen fifteen which presupposed her aggrandizement at the expense of austria and the restitution of scutari secondly by the conditions laid down by wilson for the allies which safeguarded her existence with that of belgium and serbia and thirdly by the decision of the supreme council of the conference on january nineteen nineteen in which the right of montenegro to be represented by a delegate at the paris peace conference was recognized not only this but when franchet d'espere entered montenegro with serb and french elements he gave out that he was governing in the name of king nicholas when however king nicholas the court and the government wished to return to Setange, france in whose interest it was to create a powerful yugoslavia to counterbalance italy in the adriatic informed the montenegrin government that she would have broken off all diplomatic relations had they done so what attitude did italy adopt in this difficult situation the honorable federzoni spoke yesterday of a convention that became a scrap of paper and it was this convention of thirtieth april nineteen nineteen in it the relations between italy and montenegro are clearly established and this is what it says following upon the agreement made between the italian minister for foreign affairs and the government of montenegro so there was a government still in nineteen nineteen represented by their consul general at rome commander romanadovich the montenegrin government will form a nucleus of officers and troops drawn from the montenegrin refugees it will receive from the italian government the necessary funds and money for the payment of the allowances of the officers and men other conditions follow the last being the present convention cannot be altered without the common consent of both the italian and montenegrin governments now this convention was destroyed after the death of king nicholas signs of disaffection were noticed among the montenegrin troops and the commander asked for military aid from our government in order to proceed to the work of elimination a commission was appointed presided over by colonel vigevano this commission which was to save the montenegrin army was the chief cause of its disbandment and not only this on twenty seventh may the italian minister for foreign affairs told the montenegrin government that the troops must be disbanded or no more funds would be forthcoming from italy and in this way the convention of thirtieth april nineteen nineteen was violated because in it it had been said that no alteration was to be made without the common consent of the two governments and this decision had never been accepted by the consul-general at rome who represented the montenegrin government the fact is that the italian minister had made use of the presence of the montenegrin army in italy for political purposes thinking thereby to obtain better terms with yugoslavia 
this expectation not being realized the montenegrin army at a given moment was cast aside like a worn-out coat the fact of the election of the constituent does not justify the tragic state of abandonment in which italy left montenegro because only twenty per cent of the electors voted and of those only nine per cent in favor of annexation by serbia the serbian authorities have introduced a real reign of terror in montenegro and have prevented the presentation of lists which might contain the names of candidates favorable to the independence of the country but i hope count sforza will not think the question of montenegro is a thing of the past first as he knows the montenegrin people are still in arms against the serbs and secondly the italian people are unanimous as regards this question even the socialists and i say it to their honor have several times declared in their papers that the independence of montenegro is sacred the universities of padua and bologna have pronounced in favor of her independence while the fascisti have presented a motion to this effect the shameful page which signs the death warrant of the montenegrin people must be redeemed by the adoption of our motion because if you bring the question once more before the great powers so that another plebiscite be summoned i'm certain that under conditions of liberty anti-serbian results will be returned and as section twenty seven section twenty eight of mussolini as revealed in his political speeches twenty first june nineteen twenty one denuncio and fiume the honorable mussolini in the speech from the throne the alps which go down to the brunner were spoken of now we wish to know if these alps include fiume or not i deplore the fact that in this speech no notice was given to the action of gabrielli denuncio and his legionaries applause without whom our boundaries to-day would be at monte maggiore instead of at the nevoso such a reference would have been generous as well as politically opportune i do not intend to enlarge upon the sacrifice of Dalmatia. my honorable friend Federzoni spoke very eloquently on the subject yesterday but i was surprised when in that same speech from the throne it was affirmed that zara must be the advance guard of italy on the opposite shores because zara is crushed between the slav sea and the slav hinterland while upon the subject of the adriatic gentlemen we fascisti cannot forget we who speak for the first time in this hall the attitude that you adopted in the affair of fiume we cannot forget that you attacked fiume and that when on twenty eighth december general ferrario said that he could not suspend the order for the bombardment that would have leveled that town to the ground that general and the government that gave him the order compromised our national dignity more than a little approval on the right you put a knife to the throat of fiume but you did not solve the problem you sent a commander there with an amazing scheme for the formation of a government which was to accept the conditions agreed upon at belgrade except that is to say the consortium which means the near if not immediate destruction of the porta fiume because you were well aware that after the lapse of twelve years porto barro and the delta ought to go to yugoslavia and you have already handed them over because if you had not done so you would have been obliged to make statements which have not been made end of section twenty eight Section 29 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 21st June 1921. Italy, Zionism, and the English Mandate in Palestine. The Honorable Mussolini. 
i come now to another very delicate question that must be faced because it is historically necessary and because in view of the recent pontifical allocution before the secret consistory can no longer be put off we must choose the government must decide what line it is going to take up either it must adopt the english attitude in favor of the zionists or that of benedict the fifteenth i do not think that i shall be boring the chamber if i run over the antecedents of this question on second november nineteen seventeen the english government declared itself in favor of the creation in palestine of a national center for the jewish race it being clearly understood that nothing would be done to offend the rights civil or religious of the non-jewish communities already existing in palestine or of the jews in the rest of the world later the allied powers agreed to this and finally in article number two twenty two of the peace treaty confirmed on twentieth august at sevres turkey renounced all her rights in palestine and the allied powers chose england as mandatory now it has come about that while the civilized nations of the west have not altered the common regime of liberty for the different religions in palestine just the reverse has happened and this in particular because the administration of the state in embryo has been entrusted to the political organization of the zionists but there have been arabs in palestine for ten centuries there are six hundred thousand now and seventy thousand christians while the jews only number fifty thousand in this way an extraordinarily interesting situation has been created the native jews who have lived for years under the shadow of the mosque of jerusalem cordially dislike those immigrant elements which come from poland ukraine and russia on account of their extremely emancipated ideas they have already divided into three sections one of which commonly known by its abbreviated name mopsy being already inscribed in the third international at moscow as communist section i wish to say however that no anti-semitism which would be new in this hall must be read into my words i recognize the fact that the sacrifices made by the italian jews during the war were considerable and generous but now it is a question of examining certain political positions and of indicating what line the government might eventually adopt an alliance between the arabs and the christians has now been established in palestine and a party formed at the conference of jaffa which opposes by civil war all jewish immigration on the first and fourteenth of may serious disturbances occurred which resulted in some hundreds of wounded and several deaths including a writer of note now according to the bulletin de comité des délégations juives page nineteen it appears that the text of the english mandate for palestine must be submitted to the council of the society of the league of nations in the next meeting at geneva i should wish the government in this delicate situation to accept the point of view of the vatican this is in the interest of the jews who having fled from the pogroms of ukraine and poland must not meet arab pogroms in palestine moreover it is advisable that the western nations should refrain from creating a painful legal position for the jews since tomorrow those same jews being citizen subjects of those states might immediately form foreign colonies within them End of section twenty nine section thirty of mussolini as revealed in his political speeches twenty first june nineteen twenty one the attitude of fascismo toward communism and socialism the honorable mussolini i do not wish to enlarge upon the question of foreign policy as i should then find myself out in the open 
and i might ask the minister for foreign affairs what italy's position exactly is in the face of the formidable conflicts which loom upon the horizon of international politics while count sforza is at the head of foreign affairs in giolitti's cabinet we fascisti cannot but find ourselves among the opposition comments i shall pass now to an examination of the position of fascismo with regard to the various parties signs of attention and i shall begin with the communists communism the honourable Dei teaches me springs up in times of misery and despair when the total sum of the wealth of the world is much reduced the first idea that enters men's minds is to put it all together so that everyone may have a little but this is only the first phase of communism the phase of consumption afterwards comes the phase of production which is very much more difficult so difficult indeed that that great and formidable man not yet legislator who answers to the name of waldemiro ulianov lenin when he came to shaping human material became aware that it was a good deal harder than bronze or marble approval and comments i know the communists i know them because a great many of them are my sons i mean of course spiritually laughter and i recognize with a sincerity that might appear cynical that it was i who first inoculated these people when i put into circulation among the italian socialists a little bergson mingled with much blanqui there is a philosopher sitting among the ministers who certainly teaches me that the neo-spiritualistic philosophies continually oscillating between the metaphysical and the lyrical are very dangerous for small minds laughter the neo-spiritualistic philosophies are like oysters they are palatable but they have to be digested laughter these my friends or enemies voices from the extreme left enemies enemies mussolini very well then enemies swallowed bergson when they were twenty-five and have not digested him at thirty i'm very surprised to see among the communists an economist of the standing of antonio Graziade, with whom i had great battles when he was a reformer and had thrown aside marx and his doctrines while the communists speak of the dictatorship of the proletariat of republics more or less united with the soviet and other far-fetched absurdities of that kind between them and us there cannot be other than war interruptions from the extreme left comments our position is different as regards the socialist party in the first place we are careful to make a distinction between party socialism and the socialism of labor comments on the extreme left i'm not here to overrate the importance of the syndicalist movement when you think that there are sixteen millions of working men in italy and of these hardly three millions belong to the syndicates whether the general conference of workmen the national italian syndicate the italian workmen's union the confederation of italian economic syndicates the white federation or other organizations which do not concern us and that their membership increases and diminishes according to the times when you think that the really advanced and scrupulous thinkers are a scant minority you will realize at once that we are right when we do not overrate the historical importance of this movement of the working classes but we recognize the fact that the general federation of workers did not manifest the attitude of hostility at the time of the war which was shown by a great part of the official socialist party we recognize also that through the general federation of workers technical forces have come to the front which 
in view of the fact that the organizers are in direct and daily contact with a complex economic reality are reasonable enough interruptions from the extreme left and comments we and there are witnesses here who can prove the truth of my words have never taken up a priori an attitude of opposition to the general federation of workers i add also that our attitude might be altered later if the confederation detached itself and the political directors have for some time considered the possibility of this being done from the political socialist party comments which is only a fraction of political socialism and is formed of those people who in order to act have need of the big forces represented by the working class organizations listen to what i'm going to say when you present the bill for the eight hours day you will vote in favor of it you shall not oppose this or any other measures destined to perfect our special legislation we shall not even oppose experiments of cooperation but i tell you at once that we shall resist with all our strength attempts at state socialism collectivism and the like we have had enough of state socialism and we shall never cease to fight your doctrines as a whole for we deny their truth and oppose their fatalism we deny the existence of only two classes because there are many more comments we deny the possibility of explaining the story of humanity in terms of economics we deny your internationalism because it is a luxury which only the upper classes can afford the working people are hopelessly bound to their native shores not only this but we affirm and on the strength of recent socialist literature which you ought not to repudiate that the real history of capitalism is beginning now because capitalism is not only a system of oppression but a selection of that which is of most worth a coordination of hierarchies a more strongly developed sense of individual responsibility applause so true is this that lenin after having instituted the building councils abolished them and put in dictators so true is it that after having nationalized commerce he reintroduced the regime of liberty and as you have been in russia well no after having suppressed even physically the bourgeoisie today he summons it back because without capitalism and its technical system of production russia could never rise again applause from the right comments let me speak to you frankly and tell you the mistakes you made after the armistice fundamental mistakes which are destined to influence the history of your politics first of all you ignored or underrated the survival of those forces which had been the cause of intervention in the war your paper went to ridiculous lengths never mentioning my name for months as if by that you could eliminate a man from life and history you showed yourselves worse knaves than ever by libeling the war and victory loud approval on the right you widely propagated the russian myth awakening almost messianic expectation and only afterwards when you realized the truth did you change your position by executing a more or less prudent strategic retreat laughter only after two years did you remember beside the sickle a noble tool and the hammer no less noble to place the book bravo which represents the rights of the spirit over matter rights which cannot be suppressed or denied bravo rights which you who considered yourself the heralds of a new humanity ought to be the first to inscribe upon your banners great applause from the extreme right end of section thirty section thirty one of mussolini as revealed in his political speeches twenty first june nineteen twenty one the attitude of 
fascismo towards the popular party the vatican and social democracy the honorable mussolini i come now to the popular party and i wish to remind it first that in the history of fascismo there are no invasions of churches and not even the assassination of the monk angelico galassi who was killed by revolver shots at the foot of the altar i confess to you that there have been some chastisements in the sacred burning of the offices of a newspaper which called the fascisti a band of criminals parentheses comments interruptions from the centre close parentheses fascismo neither practices nor preaches anti-clericalism it can also be said that it is not in any way tied to freemasonry this however should not be the cause of alarm which it is to some members of the popular party as to my mind freemasonry is an enormous screen behind which there are generally small things and small men parentheses comets and laughter close parentheses but let us come to concrete problems the question of divorce has been touched on here i am not at bottom in favor of divorce because i do not believe that questions of the sentimental order can be settled by juridical formulae but i ask the popular party to consider if it is just that the rich can obtain divorce by going into hungary while the poor are sometimes obliged to be tied all their lives we are one with the popular party as regards the liberty of schools we are very near them as regards the agrarian problem for we think that where small properties exist it is useless to destroy them that where it is possible to create them they ought to be created that where they cannot be created because they would be unproductive other methods must be adopted not excluding more or less collective cooperation we agree about administrative decentralization provided necessarily that autonomy and federation are not spoken of because regional federation would lead to provincial federation and so on till italy returned to what she was a century ago but there is another problem more important than these incidental questions to which i wish to draw the attention of the popular party and that is the historical problem of the relations between italy and the vatican parentheses signs of attention close parentheses all of us who from fifteen to twenty-five drank deep at the fountain of carducian literature learned to hate una vecchia vaticana lupa cruenta of which carducci speaks i think in the ode to ferrara we heard talk of a pontificate dark with mystery on the one hand and on the other of the sublime truth and the future in the words of the poet prophet now all this confined to literature may be most brilliant but to us faciste who are eminently practical it seems today more than a little out of date i maintain that the imperial and latin tradition of rome is represented today by catholicism if as momsen said thirty years ago one could not stay in rome without being impressed by the idea of universality i both think and maintain that the only universal idea of rome today is that which radiates from the vatican i am very disturbed when i see national churches being formed because i think of the millions and millions of men who will no longer look towards italy and rome for this reason i advance this hypothesis 
that if the Vatican should definitely renounce its temporal ambitions, and I think it is already on that road, Italy ought to furnish it with the necessary material help for the schools, churches, hospitals, etc., that a temporal power has at its disposal, because the increase of Catholicism in the world, the addition of 400 millions of men who from all quarters of the globe look towards Rome, is a source of pride and of special interest to us Italians. The popular party must choose, either it is going to be our friend, our enemy, or neutral. Now that I have spoken clearly, I hope that some member of the party will do likewise. Social democracy seems to have a very ambiguous position. First of all, one wonders why it is called social democracy. A democracy is already necessarily social. We think, however, that this social democracy is a kind of Trojan horse which holds within it an army against whom we shall always be at war. End of section 31. Section 32 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches. Part 6. Mussolini, the Fascista Prime Minister. 16th November, 1922. A new Cromwell in the Parliament. Mussolini, the Fascista Prime Minister. We deem it superfluous to linger over a detailed analysis of the separate speeches delivered by Benito Mussolini after 1st November 1922, the day on which, by the will of the people, he rose fully equipped to the dignities and responsibilities of power. Foreigners are, to a great extent, ignorant of the origin, the character, and the evolution of the fascista movement, owing to the lack of literature on the subject outside Italy. They have, however, already had the means of appreciating the qualities of strength, balance of mind, and foresight revealed from the very first by the Italian fascista premier. Although European public opinion may be logically entitled to an attitude of reserve in the face of the crisis of evolution and renovation through which Italy is passing, it is certain that the young president of the council, of humble birth and risen to power by a remarkable combination of circumstances, romantic, daring, ingenious, tempestuous, stands now the principal figure in the arena of world politics. A new Cromwell in the Parliament. Speech delivered in the chamber, 16th November, 1922. Honorable Mussolini. Honorable members, signs of great attention. I perform today in this hall an act of formal deference towards you for which I do not expect any special gratitude. I have the honor of announcing to the chamber that His Majesty the King, by a decree of 31st October, has accepted the resignations of the Honorable Luigi Facta from the Office of President of the Council, and of his colleagues, Minister and Undersecretaries of State, and has asked me to form the new ministry. On the same day, His Majesty has appointed me President of the Council of Ministers and Minister of the Interior and of Foreign Affairs, etc., for many years, for too many years, crises in the government took place and were solved by more or less tortuous and underhand maneuvers, so much so that a crisis came to be regarded as a regular scramble for portfolios, and the ministry was caricatured in the comic papers. Now, for the second time in the brief space of seven years, the Italian people, or rather the best part of it, has overthrown a ministry 
and formed for itself an entirely new government from outside, regardless of every parliamentary designation. The seven years of which I speak lie between the May of 1915 and October of 1922. I shall leave to the gloomy partisans of super-constitutionalism the task of discoursing, more or less plaintively, about all this. I maintain that revolution has its rights, and I may add, so that everyone may know, that I am here to defend and give the greatest value to the revolution of the black shirts, inserting it intrinsically in the history of the nation as an active force in development, progress, and the restoration of equilibrium. Loud applause from the left. I could have carried our victory much further, and I refused to do so. I imposed limits upon my action and told myself that the truest wisdom is that which does not forsake one after victory. With 300,000 young men, fully armed, ready for anything, and almost religiously prompt to obey any command of mine, I could have punished all those who have slandered the fascisti and thrown mud at them. Approval on the right. I could have made a bivouac of this gloomy gray hall. I could have shut up Parliament and formed a government of fascisti exclusively. I could have done so, but I did not wish to do so, at any rate, at the moment. Our adversaries remained in their shelters, and then quietly issued forth and obtained their freedom, of which they are already taking advantage, to set traps for us and slander us, as at Karate, Bergamo, Udine, and Muja. I have formed a coalition government, not with the intention of obtaining a parliamentary majority, with which at the moment I can perfectly well dispense, but in order to gather together in support of the suffering nation all those who, over and above questions of party and section, wish to save her. From the bottom of my heart, I thank all those who have worked with me, both ministers and undersecretaries. I thank my colleagues in the government, who wish to share with me the heavy responsibilities of this hour and I cannot remember without pleasure the attitude of the Italian working classes who indirectly encouraged and strengthened the fascisti by their solidarity, active or passive. I believe also that I shall be giving expression to the thoughts of a large part of this assembly, and certainly of the majority of the Italian people, if I pay a warm tribute to our sovereign, who, by refusing to permit the useless reactionary attempts made at the eleventh hour, to proclaim martial law, has avoided civil war, and allowed the fresh and ardent fascista current, newly arisen, out of the war and exalted by victory, to pour itself into the sluggish mainstream of the state. Cries of long live the king. The ministers and a great many deputies rise to their feet and applaud. Before arriving here, we were asked on all sides for a program. It is not, alas, programs that are wanting in Italy, but men to carry them out. All the problems of Italian life, all, I say, have long since been solved on paper, but the will to put these solutions into practice has been lacking. The government today represents that firm and decisive will. End of section 32. Section 33 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 33, 16th November 1922, The Foreign Policy of the Fascista Government Same speech delivered in the Chamber, 16th November 1922 
Honourable Mussolini. Honourable Members, Our foreign policy is the business which chiefly concerns us at the present moment. I shall speak of it at once, as I think that what I am going to say will dispel many apprehensions. I shall not touch upon all the questions connected with the subject, because, in this sphere, as in all others, I prefer actions to words. The fundamental principle upon which our foreign policy is based is that treaties of peace, once signed and ratified, must be carried out, no matter whether they are good or bad. A self-respecting nation cannot follow another course. Treaties are not eternal or irreparable. They are chapters and not epilogues in history. To put them into practice means to try them. If in the course of execution they are proved to be absurd, that in itself constitutes the possibility of a further examination of the respective positions. I shall bring before the consideration of Parliament both the Treaty of Rapallo and the agreements of Santa Margarita, which are derived from it. Agreed that treaties, when once perfected and ratified, must be loyally carried out, I go on to establish another fundamental principle, which is the rejection of all the famous reconstructive ideology. We admit that there is a kind of economic union or interdependence among European countries. We admit that this economic life must be reconstructed, but we refuse to think that the methods hitherto adopted will succeed in doing so. Commercial treaties concluded between the two powers, the basis of the closest economic relations between nations, are of more value in the reconstruction of the European economic world than all the complicated and confused general plenary conferences, whose lamentable history everybody knows. As far as Italy is concerned, we intend to follow a policy which will be dignified and at the same time compatible with our national interests. Loud applause. We cannot allow ourselves the luxury of a policy of foolish altruism, or of complete surrender to the desire of others. Though ut des, for Italy today has a new importance which must be reckoned with adequately, and this fact is beginning to be recognised beyond her boundaries. We have not the bad taste to exaggerate our powers, but neither do we wish to belittle them with excessive and useless modesty. My formula is simple, nothing for nothing. Those who wish to have concrete proofs of friendship from us must give us the same. Fascista Italy, just as she does not intend to repudiate treaties for many reasons, political, moral and economic, does not intend, either, to abandon the Allies. Rome is in line with London and Paris, but Italy must assert herself and impose upon the Allies that strict and courageous examination of conscience which has not been faced by them from the time of the armistice up to the present day. Does an entente still exist in the full sense of the word? What is the position of the entente with regard to Germany and Russia, with regard to an alliance between these two countries? What is the position of Italy in the entente, of the Italy who, not solely by reason of the weakness of her governors, lost strong positions in the Adriatic and the Mediterranean, who did not obtain any colonies or raw materials, who is literally crushed under the load of debts incurred in order to obtain victory, and whose most sacred rights, even, were held in question. In the conversations I intend to have with the Prime Ministers of England and France, I mean to face clearly and in its entirety the question of the Entente, and Italy's position within it. As a result of this, alternatives will arise. Either the Entente, finding a way of settling her inward perplexities and contradictions, 
will become a really solid homogeneous body with evenly distributed forces, with equal rights and equal duties, or her hour will have struck, and Italy, regaining her freedom of action, will turn loyally with a new policy to the work of safeguarding her interests. I hope that the first eventuality will be realised, particularly in view of the new uprising in the East and the growing intimacy between Russia, Turkey and Germany. But, however it may be, we must go beyond conventional phrases. It is time, in fact, to abandon diplomatic expedients, which are renewed and repeated at every conference, in order to deal directly with historical fact, by which alone it is possible to decide, one way or another, the trend of events. Our foreign policy, which aims at protection of our interests, respect of treaties and the settling of our position in the Entente, cannot be described as adventurous and imperialist, in the vulgar sense of the word. We want to follow a policy of peace that will not, however, be at the same time suicidal. In order to refute the pessimists who expected catastrophic results to follow upon the advent of the fascisti to power, it is enough to remind them that our relations with the Swiss are perfectly friendly, and that a commercial treaty, already in the process of formation, will further contribute towards strengthening them when it is completed. That they are perfectly correct as regards Yugoslavia and Greece. We are on good terms with Spain, Czechoslovakia, Poland and Romania, and the other Baltic states, where of late Italy has gained a great deal of sympathy, and where we are trying to make commercial agreements, and on equally good terms with the other states. As far as Austria is concerned, Italy will keep faith as regards her promises, and will not neglect to enter into economic relations with her as well as with Hungary and Bulgaria. We maintain, as regards Turkey, that what is now an accomplished fact ought to be recognised as such at Lausanne. With the necessary guarantees as to trade in the Straits, European interests and the interests of the small Christian communities. The situation which has arisen in Islam is going to be carefully watched. When Turkey has got what belongs to her, she must not try to obtain more. There will come a day when it will be necessary to say, thus far and no further. The danger of complications in the Balkans, and in consequence in Europe in general, can be avoided by firmness, which will have an increased effect in proportion to the loyalty of the Allies' conduct. We do not forget that there are 44,000 Mohammedans in Romania, 600,000 in Bulgaria, 400,000 in Albania, and 1.5 million in Yugoslavia. A world which the recent victory of the Crescent has exalted, at any rate secretly. As far as Russia is concerned, Italy believes that the moment has come to face the question of her relations with that country and their actual reality. But this apart from internal conditions in that country, with which we, as a government, do not wish to interfere, since in our turn we shall admit of no interference in our home affairs. In consequence, we are disposed to consider the possibility of a definite solution of the situation. As regards the presence of Russia at Lausanne, Italy has supported the most liberal point of view and does not despair of its eventual triumph, although thus far she has only been invited to discuss the single question of the Dardanelles. Our relations with the United States are very good, and I shall make it my care to see that they are improved, especially as regards a close economic cooperation. A commercial treaty with Canada is on the point of being signed. 
We are on cordial terms with the republics of Central and South America, and especially with Brazil and the Argentine, where millions of Italians live. They must not be denied the possibility of taking part in the local political life around them, which will not estrange them from, but rather bind them all closer to their mother country. As for economic and financial problems, Italy will maintain, in the approaching conference at Brussels, that debts and reparations form an indivisible binomial. In order to carry out this policy of dignity and regard for our national interests, we need to have at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs a central staff competent to deal with the new necessities of the national life and of the increased prestige of Italy in the world. Applause. End of section 33. Section 34 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 16th November 1922, The Policy of Fascismo for Italy, Economy, Work and Discipline. Same speech delivered in the chamber, 16th November 1922. Honorable Mussolini. Honorable members, the policy we shall follow as regards the country itself can be summed up in three words, economy, work and discipline. The financial problem is a fundamental one. The balancing of the state budget must be accomplished as soon as possible by a regime of careful administration, intelligence in the use of money, the utilization of all the productive forces of the nation and the removal of the trappings of war. Loud applause. For further information as regards the financial question, which though serious, is open to rapid improvement, I refer you to my colleague Tangara, who will give you information when the financial measures are discussed. He who talks of work talks of the productive middle classes in the towns and in the country. It is not a question of privilege for the first or for privilege for the second, but of the safeguarding of all the interests which are in accordance with national production. The proletariat which works and whose well-being concerns us, though not from weak demagogic motives, has nothing to fear, nothing to lose and everything to gain from a financial policy which preserves the balance of the state and prevents bankruptcy, which would have a disastrous effect, especially among the humbler classes. Our policy as regards emigration must free itself of an excessive paternalism, while at the same time an Italian who emigrates must know that his interests will be securely guarded by the representatives of his country abroad. The growth of the prestige of a nation in the world is in proportion to the discipline it shows at home. There is no doubt that the internal condition of the country has improved, but it is not yet as I should like to see it. I do not intend to indulge myself in easy optimism. I am no lover of Pangloss. In the big cities and in all the towns in general there is peace. Instances of violence are sporadic and peripheral. But at the same time, these also must cease. The citizens 
no matter to what party they belong, shall have freedom of movement. All religions shall be respected, with particular regard to the dominant faith, Catholicism. Statutory liberty shall not be infringed, and the law shall be made to be respected at all costs. The state is strong and will prove its power equally where all classes of citizens are concerned, including illegal fascismo, because it would now be irresponsible illegality and without any justification. I must add, however, that almost all the fascisti have submitted to the new order of things. The state does not mean to abdicate for anyone, and whoever opposes it must be punished. This explicit statement is a warning to all citizens and I know will be particularly pleasing to the fascisti who have fought and won in order to have a state which would make itself felt in every direction with inexhaustible energy. It must not be forgotten that besides the minority that represents actual militant politics, there are 40 millions of excellent Italians who work by the splendid birth rate perpetuate our race and who ask and have the right to obtain freedom from the chronic state of disorder, which is the sure prelude to general ruin. Since sermons evidently are not enough, the state will put the army it has at its disposal in order by a process of selection and improvement. The fascista state will form a perfectly organized and united police force of great mobility and with a high moral standard, while the army and navy, glorious and dear to every Italian heart, withdrawn from the vicissitudes of parliamentary politics, reorganized and strengthened, will represent the last reserve of the nation both at home and abroad. Gentlemen, from the last communication issued, you will learn what the Fascista program is in detail with regard to each individual ministry. I do not wish, as long as it is possible to avoid it, to govern against the wishes of the Chamber. But the Chamber must understand the peculiar position it holds, which makes it liable to dismissal in two days or in two years. Laughter. We ask for full powers, because we wish to take full responsibility. Without full powers, you know perfectly well that not a penny, a penny, I say, would be saved. By this we do not intend to exclude the possibility of voluntary cooperation, which we shall cordially accept, whether it be from deputies, senators, or single competent citizens. We have, every one of us, a religious sense of the difficulty of our task. The country encourages us and waits. We shall not give you further words, but facts. Let us solemnly and formally pledge ourselves to balance the budget, and we shall do it. We wish to have a foreign policy of peace, but at the same time it must be dignified and firm, and we shall have it. None of our enemies, past or present, need deceive themselves about the rapidity of our advent to power. Laughter. Comments.
Our government has a formidable hold upon the hearts of the people and is supported by the best elements in the country. There is no doubt that in these last days an enormous step has been taken towards spiritual unity. The Italian nation has found herself again from the north to the south, from the continent to those generous islands which shall no more be forgotten. Applause. From Rome to the industrious colonies of the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Gentlemen, do not throw useless words at the nation. Fifty-two requests to speak on my lists is too much. Let us work, rather, with pure hearts and ready brains to assure the prosperity and the greatness of the country. And may God help me to carry my hardest task to a victorious end. Loud applause. Many deputies come down to congratulate the president. End of section 34. Section 35 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 35. 27th November 1922. Conscientious general diagnosis of the conditions of the country and its foreign policy. Sitting of 27th November 1922, Senate. Honorable Mussolini. Honorable Senators, I have listened with deep interest and attention to all the speeches touching upon various subjects which have been delivered in this hall. The ministers directly concerned can answer to the different individual questions. I shall limit myself to confuting some of the statements which can be said to be of a general order. Of course, if the vote of the Senate be unanimous, it will please me, laughter, but you must not believe that unanimity flatters me excessively. I entertain a thorough contempt for those who have more or less clamorously sided with me in these last days. They are so often the kind of people who follow the fair wind and are ready to tumble headlong over to the other side when the wind changes direction. Laughter. I prefer sincere enemies to doubtful friends. Of the speeches delivered in this hall, some have a particular importance. As, for instance, that, generally optimistic of Senator Conti, which reminded me of the analogous speech, also optimistic, delivered in the chamber by the Honourable Boise. This favourable view of economic conditions in Italy, coming thus from a head of the proletariat and a head of the great Italian industries, is a curious coincidence and certainly of good omen. A neat surgical operation. I owe a special answer to Senator Albertini. I admire his faith in pure liberalism, but I take the liberty to remind him that constitutionalism in England, liberalism in France, in fact all the ideas and doctrines which have in common the name of liberalism, spring out of a fierce revolutionary travail without which, today, Signor Albertini would not, very probably, have been able to pay these tributes to pure liberalism. How was it possible to find a way out of this internal crisis, which every day was becoming more alarming and distressing? A temporary and transitional ministry was no longer possible. It did not solve the problem. It hardly delayed it. Consequently, in two, three, or six months' time at the most, with that mobility of opinions and desires that characterise certain parliamentary circles, we should have found ourselves where we were at the beginning, with nothing gained but the failure which would have aggravated the crisis. Hear, hear. After having thought over the matter deeply, 
Therefore, and having clearly realized the ironic paradox, becoming every day more manifest of the existence of two states, one, the actual state itself, and the other which nobody succeeded in defining, I said to myself at a certain moment that only a neat surgical operation can make one compact state of the two and save the fortunes of the nation. Senator Albertini must not think that this decision was other than the result of long meditation. He must not think that I had not well considered all the dangers and risks of this illegal action. I willed it deliberately. I dare to say more than this, I forced it on. To my mind, there was no other way except by revolution to revive a political class grown enormously tired and discouraged in all its sections. And since experience teaches something, or ought to teach something, to intelligent men, I at once set limits and establish rules for my action. I have not gone beyond a certain point. I did not in the least become intoxicated by victory, nor did I take advantage of it. Who could have prevented me from closing the parliament? Who could have prevented me from proclaiming a dictatorship with two or three men? Who could withstand me? Who could have withstood a movement which consisted not only in 300,000 membership cards but in 300,000 rifles? Nobody. It was I who, for the love of our country, said that it was necessary to subordinate impulse, sentiment and personal ambition to the supreme interests of the nation. And it was I who put the movement at once on constitutional lines. I have formed a ministry with men from all parties in the house. I did not hesitate to include a member of the old cabinet. I gave importance to technical efficiency and paid no attention to political labels. I formed a coalition ministry and I presented it to the chamber. I asked for its judgment and its vote and I found that chamber little changed. But when I found out that not less than 33 orators had presented 36 orders of the day, I said to myself that perhaps it was not necessary to abolish Parliament, but that the country would be glad to see it enjoying a holiday for a certain period. Laughter. I have, therefore, no intention of dismissing the chamber, of destroying all the fruits of liberal revolution. I can boast of all this philosophically from a point of view which might almost be called negative. But philosophy must be silent in the face of political necessity. Let us speak frankly. What is this liberalism, this liberalism put into practice? Because if there is anyone who believes that, to be a true liberal, it is necessary to give some hundreds of irresponsible people, fanatics and scoundrels, the power of ruining 40 millions of Italians, I refuse absolutely to give them this power. Applause. Gentlemen, I have no fetishes. And where the interests of the country are concerned, the government has the right to intervene. If it did not do so, it would be inadequate the first time and the next time suicidal. Respect for the Constitution I do not intend to deviate from the Constitution or to improvise. The example of other revolutions has shown me that there are some fundamental principles in the life of the people that must be respected. Hear, hear. I do not intend that national discipline shall be any longer merely a word. I do not intend that the law shall be any longer a blunt weapon. Hear, hear. I do not intend that liberty shall degenerate into license. I do not intend, either, to remain above the fray among those who love, who work for, and who are ready to sacrifice themselves for the nation, or, on the other hand, among those who are ready to do the reverse. It was for just such a foolish... Rolandism, 
that this last government failed. One cannot remain above the fray when the moral forces which are the foundation of the national community are at stake, and nobody can say that a national policy understood thus is reactionary. For me, all these names are left and right of conservative, aristocracy, and democracy are so many empty academic terms. They serve occasionally to distinguish, but more often to confuse. I shall not follow an anti-proletariat policy, for reasons national and other than national. We do not want to oppress the proletariat. We do not want to drive it back into humiliating conditions of life. On the contrary, we want to elevate it materially and spiritually, but not because we think that the masses, the populace, could create a special type of civilization in the future. Let us leave this kind of ideology to those who profess themselves to be ministers of this mysterious religion. The reasons for which we wish to follow a policy of proletarian welfare are quite different. They lie in the interests of the nation. They are dictated by the reality of facts, by the conviction that no nation can be united and at peace if 20 millions of workmen are condemned to live in humiliating and inadequate conditions of life. And it may be, nay, it is certain that our labour policy, or rather anti-demagogic policy, because we cannot promise the paradise we do not possess, will ultimately prove to be much more useful to those same working classes than the other policy which, like an oriental mirage, has hypnotised and mystified them into a vain attitude of waiting. Approval The Military Organisation of Fascismo What will you do with the military organisation of fascismo? I have been asked. This military organisation gave Rome an imposing spectacle. There were 52,000 black shirts, and they left Rome within the 24 hours prescribed by me. They obey. I dare even to go further and to say that they have the mysticism of obedience. I do not intend to disperse these exuberant forces, not only for the sake of fascismo itself, but in the interests of the nation. What I shall impose upon fascismo is the discontinuance of all the acts for which there is now no necessity. Hear, hear. Those small, individual and collective acts of violence which are rather humiliating to everyone, which are often the result of local situations and could with difficulty be associated with the big problems of the different Italian parties. I am sure that what might be called illegal fascismo, now happily on the decline, will soon end altogether. This is one of the conditions of that pacification to which my friend Senator Bellini alluded, but in order that this pacification may succeed, the other side must also cease their ambushes and acts of violence. Foreign Policy I thank the Senate for not having dwelt too much on foreign policy. I am particularly glad that fascismo has universally accepted with enthusiasm my firm decision as regards the application of treaties, because if I do not allow illegality in internal policy, still less shall I allow it in foreign affairs. Hear, hear. So let it be clear to all inside this hall and out. Foreign policy will be in the hands of one man alone, of the man who has the honour of representing and directing it, because there cannot be an unlimited division and diffusion of responsibility, and foreign policy is too difficult and delicate a matter to be thrown as occupation to those who have nothing better to do. Laughter. I can then tell the Honourable Basilei that I shall keep the Ministry for Foreign Affairs for myself. At bottom, the Ministry of the Interior is a Ministry of Police, 
and I am glad to be the head of the police. I am not in the least ashamed of it. On the contrary, I hope that all Italian citizens forgetting certain atavisms will recognize in the police one of the most necessary forces for the welfare of our social existence. But above all, I tend to follow a line of foreign policy which will not be adventurous, while, at the same time, it will not be characterized by self-sacrifice. Strong approval. Certainly miracles are not to be expected in this field, as it is impossible to cancel in a conversation, even in a dramatic one of half an hour, a policy which has been the result of other conditions and of another period of time. I think that the foreign policy should have as its supreme aim the maintenance of peace. This is a fine ideal, especially after a war that has lasted four years. Our policy, therefore, will not be that of the imperialists who seek the impossible, while at the same time, it will not necessarily rest upon the negative formula according to which one should never have recourse to force. It is well to keep the possibility of war in sight. It cannot be discarded a priori, because in that case we should find ourselves disarmed with the other nations in arms. Great applause. But I have no illusions, for, in accordance with my temperament, I disdain all easy optimism. People who see things through rose-coloured spectacles make me laugh. I often pity them. I think, however, I have already succeeded in something, and in no small thing either, which will have no small results. That is to say, I think I have succeeded in making the Allies and other peoples of Europe, who had not yet attained the true vision of Italy, see her as she really is. Not as something vaguely prehistoric, not the Italy of monuments and libraries, all most respectable things, but Italy as I see her born under my eyes, the Italy of today, overflowing with vitality, prepared to give herself a new lease of life, pregnant with serenity and beauty, an Italy which does not live like a parasite on the past, but is prepared to build up her own future with her own forces and through her own work and martyrdom. This is the Italy which has now flashed, be it ever so vaguely, before the eyes of the representatives of other nations, who henceforward must be convinced, whether they wish it or not, that Italy does not intend to follow in the wake of others, but intends to vindicate her rights with dignity, and with no less dignity to protect her interests. Approval God and the People I have been admonished in turn by all those who have spoken in this hall. They have said to me, the responsibility which you take is enormously heavy. Yes, I know it and I feel it. Sometimes intensified by a deep and vibrating expectancy, it almost crushes me. At these times I have to gather all my force to arm myself with all my determination in order to keep before me the interests and the future of our country. Well, I know that it is not my interests that are at stake. Certainly, if I do not succeed, I am a broken man. These are not experiments that can be tried twice in a lifetime. But my person is of little value. Not to succeed would not mean much to me personally, but it would be infinitely serious for the nation. Hear, hear. I intend to take the helm of the ship, and I do not intend to yield it to anybody. But I shall not refuse to take on board all those who wish to form my crew, all those who wish to work with me, who will give me advice and suggestions, who will in a word, give me their invaluable and indispensable cooperation. 
In the other chamber I invoked the help of God. In this, and I hope my words will not be taken as mere rhetoric, I shall invoke the Italian people. In doing this I might feel that I was walking in the steps of Mazzini, who made a union between God and the people. But if, as I hope and earnestly desire, the people will be disciplined, laborious, and proud of this their glorious country, I feel I shall not fail to arrive at my goal. Ovation. The ministers and many senators advanced to congratulate the orator. End of section 35. Section 36 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches, 12th December, 1922. I remain the head of fascismo, although the head of the Italian government. Speech delivered in London, 12th December, 1922, before the fascisti. Fascisti. You must feel that in this last month the Italian people have raised themselves considerably in the eyes of all the other nations. Everybody knows now that a new and vigorous Italy was born in those historic days of October. Remember that the revolution was great, but that it is not over, indeed that it has hardly begun. Hard tasks and heavy responsibilities await us. I remain the head of fascismo, although the head of the government. Beneath these official clothes, which I wear as a duty, I shall keep the fascista uniform, just as I wore it before His Majesty when he summoned me to form a new cabinet. Fascista Italy, I assure you, is in very strong hands. All our enemies know that every attempt at revolt will be inexorably crushed. The old Italy is dead. It will not come to life again. The men who gave their lives in the war will prevent it. Those who fell in the fascista war no less sacred and necessary, will prevent it. The living will prevent it. We here and everywhere are ready for any battle, so that we may uphold the foundations of our race and our history. The time has come to face serenely the sons of other nations. The era of renunciations and obligations is past. The head of the government tells you this. You asked me to come here upon this occasion of the inauguration of the London section of the Fascista Party. I present you with your banner. Keep it as you keep alive the flame of that faith for which so many fine young men have died. Keep it for the fortunes of Italy and fascismo. End of section 36 Section 37 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 2nd January 1923 Our task in history is to make a united state of the Italian nation. Speech delivered, 2nd January, 1923, upon the occasion of the ministerial reception in Palazzo Chigi at Rome, in answer to the Honorable Teofilo Rossi, Minister of Industry and Commerce, who had concluded his address to the President by saying the victorious Greeks returning from Troy, through the storm cried, Nil desperandum teucro duce et auspice teucro. We, in our turn, will say nil desperandum, while at the helm of the state there is a man like Benito Mussolini. Dear colleagues, let me first of all say how happy I am that we should have met in these magnificent rooms which furnish evidence of the strength and beauty of our race, and are also a testimony of our victory, as, if I am not mistaken, these were the apartments of an enemy's embassy. I was very much touched by the words spoken just now by our colleague Rossi. The nation as a whole is not deceived and follows with brotherly sympathy the work of our government. 
it is aware of the difficulties we have to overcome difficulties which arise from the double work of demolition and reconstruction which we have undertaken simultaneously the nation little by little is being restored to order there are more than ten thousand communes in italy and there is no reason to fear a catastrophe because there is a quarrel without any particular positive importance in one of them during the critical days of saturday and sunday all this does preoccupy me however and i intend by every means possible to get the nation back into a state of general discipline that will be above all sects factions and parties there was an italian people who had not yet become a nation the travail of fifty years of history and above all the last war has made them a nation the task in history which awaits us is this to make a state of this nation that is to say a moral idea which is personified and expressed in a system of individual responsible hierarchies composed of men who from the first to the last feel it a pride and a privilege to fulfil their duty this work seen from the standpoint of historical development cannot be completed in two months and probably not even in two years but this is the direction in which our government is working in every decision we make in every act we achieve is guided by the necessity of establishing one united state which will be the only depository of our history and of the future and the strength of the italian nation it is a difficult and arduous undertaking but life would not be worth living if we did not face these tasks and if we had not the satisfaction of having met them all the more serenely for their difficulty no i am certain that we shall not frustrate the legitimate hopes of the italian people we can and we will adopt a policy of wisdom and severity towards the people and towards ourselves. we must foster the ideals of the nation and deal relentlessly with the slightest manifestation of lack of discipline i too should like to quote from the tales of ancient greece when the spartan mothers presented their departing sons with their shields it was with these words either with this or on it now i should like our programs to be inspired by this idea for with this program and with this only shall we win through our efforts our work and our suffering will rise that powerful prosperous and peaceful italy of which we dream which we long for and desire to see long live italy End of section thirty seven section thirty eight of mussolini is revealed in his political speeches section thirty eight 15th January 1923 The Advance in the Ruhr District Speech delivered at Rome 15th January 1923 Before the Members of the Cabinet The Prime Minister Honourable colleagues, The most important event of these last few days in the international world has been the French advance on the Ruhr. It is well to establish clearly the attitude of Italy with regard to this advance since for political reasons and also for reasons connected with the stock exchange it has purposely not been properly estimated it is necessary to go back to the conference of paris and the rejection of bonard law's proposals on the part of italy france and belgium in order to understand the line of conduct adopted by the italian government it is a fact that each one of the powers in the entente has taken up an attitude of its own due to its own particular conditions 
Without taking into consideration the Americans who have withdrawn their troops from the Rhine, this is the position of the powers. England has not joined with France, but has not decided at any rate up to the present to recall her troops from German soil, nor has she changed in her friendly attitude towards France, as was set forth by the most recent communications from the Foreign Office. France, interested in the problem of reparations, has upon the basis of the deliberations of the commission appointed to inquire into this question, sent into the Ruhr a board of control for the production of coal and, later, troops for the purpose of protection. Belgium has afforded France some military cooperation and undivided political support. Italy has only given political and technical support, sending her engineers to the Ruhr. Our country could not isolate herself without committing a very grave mistake. She could not exclude herself entirely from any operation of control taking place in a region of coalfields, and, therefore, of fundamental importance in European and Italian economics. As regards the project for a continental alliance directed against England, such an idea simply does not exist. The Italian government never suggested such a thing, and in any case would never have been able to consider the possibility of a continental union against England, both on account of her importance in the economic life of the continent, and of existing relations between Italy and that country. It is true, on the contrary, that the Italian government had advised France to limit, as far as possible, the military character of the advance in the rural district, and not to reject all possibilities of agreement in this burning question. But if this understanding, which would give peace to Europe, were to be realised, it is the opinion of Italy that it could not come about without the cooperation of England. Italy, which has no coal, cannot afford the luxury of renunciations and isolation, but it is as well to make it clear, because it is the truth, that Italian policy upon this occasion, as upon all others, is inspired by considerations of a general nature, as decided in the Memorandum of London, for the protection of Italian interests and of European economics generally. The Italian government thinks that if there is a possibility of agreement, and it works in this direction, it would be a grave mistake on the part of Germany to refuse it. It seems as if a détente between the French command and some of the industrial magnates of the Ruhr district has already taken place. As for the mass of the workmen, it appears as if they do not intend to put insuperable difficulties in the way of the work of the control. The payment of the quota for the 15th January is postponed until the end of the month. There are, therefore, 15 days of useful time, sufficient to mend the situation. It does not seem improbable that the French will support the Italian project presented at London upon the subject of reparations. As for the attitude of the Soviet government, it appears to be very circumspect and has not changed from that previously manifested, though only in words, towards the German proletariat. From Lucerne comes satisfactory news. I have the pleasure of announcing that, in some of the very delicate questions which seem to be leading to a rupture, such as that of minorities, if an agreement has been reached, it has been due to the wise and level-headed work of the Italian delegation. Without discussion, the declarations of the Prime Minister are unanimously approved. The Great Fascista Council my colleagues in the cabinet will certainly have read with attention the deliberations of the great national council of the fascisti, and have noticed the importance of their character. 
It is an essentially political organisation, which, however, does not encroach in any way upon the sphere of action of the government represented by the Cabinet. In fact, none of the legislative measures passed or to be passed by the Cabinet were made the subject of discussion by the Fascista Council. All its decisions are of a purely political nature. Thus, they have definitely settled the character of the national militia. They have constituted the organisation which is to establish relations between fascisti and nationalists, as well as those between fascismo and the other parties which loyally cooperate with the government, and the organisations of employers already in existence before the formation of the analogous fascista groups. Important, also, is the vote by which the associations of ex-soldiers, including the disabled, who have entered the sphere of the state have been asked to give men for the purposes of administration. The declaration of loyal devotion to the monarchy is both magnificent and solemn, and dispels every little misunderstanding of interested dabblers in politics on that score, for whom the warning that closed the proceedings of the Great Council came opportunely. The warning, that is to say, that the government, note the government, will inexorably crush every attempt at direct or indirect opposition to its authority. The Great Fascista Council has also sent messages to the working people of Italy, who are in the process of re-establishing active discipline amongst themselves, and who accept the provisions of the government, even the hardest, because they assure that they are inspired by purely national necessity. Thus, the essentially historic function of the Great Fascista Council at this moment is clearly outlined. The Council will support and safeguard the action of the government and perform in the party and in the nation the work of general political orientation which must serve as a base for the work of the government itself. The Council of Ministers approves the declarations of the Prime Minister. End of section 38 Section 39 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches 19th January 1923 The Government of Speed Speech delivered at Rome, 19th January, 1923, at the headquarters of the Motor Transport Company. The Honorable Mussolini. I warmly thank Commendatore de Cupis and all the workmen. I was going to say my colleagues, for the warm welcome I have received. If my minutes were not numbered, I should like here in the presence of the controllers of the steering wheel to sing the praises of speed in this the epic of speed. The times in which we live no longer allow of a sedentary, egotistical life. Everything must be on the go. Everybody must raise the standard of his activity, both in the offices and the factories where the work is done. Applause. And the government, which I have the honor to represent, is the government of speed. That is to say, we get rid of all that is stagnant in our national life. Formerly, the bureaucracy dozed over deferred decisions. Today it must proceed with a maximum of rapidity. Applause. If we all go ahead with this energy, goodwill, and cheerfulness, we shall surmount the crisis, which, for that matter, is already partly overcome. I am pleased to see that Rome also is waking up, can offer us sights such as these works. I maintain that Rome can become an industrial center. The Romans must be the first to disdain to live solely upon their memories. The Colosseum and the Forum are glories of the past, but we must build up the glories of today and of tomorrow. We belong to the generation of builders who, by work and discipline, with hands and brains, 
desired to reach the ultimate and longed-for goal, the greatness of the future nation, which will be a nation of producers and not of parasites. End of section 39 Section 40 of Miscellany as Revealed in His Political Speeches Section 40 23rd January 1923 The March of Events on the Ruhr The Position of Italy Speech delivered at Rome, 23rd January 1923, before the Cabinet. The Prime Minister Honourable colleagues, since the last meeting of the Cabinet, the situation on the Ruhr has become more complicated, and this also from the social point of view, as a result of the closing down of the factories and the outbreak of strikes in the mines and public services of the occupied zones. In order to understand the attitudes of the different powers, and the fact that these attitudes have not undergone any changes worthy of note, it is necessary to summarise briefly the events of these last few days of high tension, political and economic. The period of time granted for the moratorium having elapsed on 15th January, France and Belgium have caused a mission of control to be sent to the mines in the Ruhr district, escorted by protecting troops, and have extended the area of territory occupied in the Ruhr district as far as Dortmund. On 16th January, the French government gave notice that the industrial magnates on the Ruhr had declared that they had received orders from the German government not to hand over any more coal. The German Minister for Foreign Affairs himself communicated these instructions to our ambassador at Berlin. France and Belgium were not, therefore, receiving any more coal, even when payment was made in advance. In the face of German resistance, the French and Belgian troops have proceeded to requisition the coal deposits at the pitheads, the factories, and the railway stations, and have also taken other serious steps of a political and military order. Italian experts, sent only to take part in economic operations of control, received orders to limit their cooperation to that which concerned coercive measures of a political nature. Such an attitude was clearly faced and decided in Paris. On the strength of the decision made on 26 December by the Commission of Reparations, which reported the failure of Germany, as regards Italy also, to supply wood, France and Belgium decided to proceed to the exploitation of the Crown and communal forests in the Rhine territory. Germany had, besides, made it known that coal supplies and cattle would be refused to France and Belgium by way of both reparation and restitution. The Commission of Reparations in its decision of 16th January verified this intentional failure on the part of Germany from the 12th January and notified it to the government. As a result of this, France and Belgium decided to take possession of the west customs frontier of Germany in the occupied zone. The Italian government took over control of the customs and also of the forests, this being included among the measures which the Italian memorandum had reserved as a security in the case of the concession of the moratorium, but it asked the French government what was going to be the extent to which the action was to be carried. The French government replied that the occupation of the Ruhr was not of a military character, but was for the protection of French technical bodies, which were very numerous in the occupied area. The Italian delegate, who was already on the High Commission of the Rhine, which directs the exploitation and also the control of the mines, has received orders to take part in those deliberations which have an economic and financial character, and to abstain from attending those which are political. 
As I said before, the attitudes of the great powers have not altered to any great extent. England seems officially uninterested in what happens in the Ruhr, but this has not prevented the English representative on the Rhine High Commission from declaring in the name of his government that he will be present at the deliberations, abstaining from recording his vote when he thinks it best. But he adds, also, that his government will not oppose the carrying out of the provisions in the zone occupied by the English troops, which still remain on the Rhine. As you see, it is not England's intention to accentuate the difference between her policy and that which is, at present, adopted by France. Mediation on the part of Italy was spoken of, which might have led later to a direct Anglo-Italian intervention, both at Berlin and Paris. An offer of real mediation does not exist, and could not be made without the certainty that it would be accepted with a certain favour. It would be a grave mistake to expose Italian policy to a failure of this sort. It is a fact that the Italian government did warn the Germans of the danger of the blind alley situation in which she has voluntarily placed herself, and in which she seems determined to stay. She also called the attention of France, in a friendly manner, to the complications, not only economic, but also political and social, which might arise from the occupation of the Ruhr. The work of the Italian government. Matters standing thus, the Italian government cannot at present change its attitude, because no step it took now would alter the general situation, or exercise a preponderating influence in the decisions of the governments most involved. The opinion of the Italian government is that the situation on the Ruhr has not yet reached the stage at which a solution must necessarily be found, and only when that moment arrives will it be able, perhaps, to have an influence in the situation itself. As for the moratorium which President Poincaré has decided to propose to the Germans, in view of the fast approaching date of payment, 31st January, it is worthy of note that it will include some of the points made in the Italian Memorandum of London, namely the two years moratorium and the German internal loan. As far as America is concerned, having once withdrawn her troops from the Rhine, she has not altered her policy of neutral inactivity. One understands that the events in the Ruhr district have caused a general uneasiness over the whole of Europe, especially in the countries which formed the Little Entente. Rumours which spoke of mobilisation and the concentration of troops upon some of the frontiers have proved unfounded and exaggerated. As regards Russia, beyond reports of certain political activities on the part of the Third International, carried on with a view to taking advantage socially of the events on the Ruhr, there is no definite news of serious preparations for military intervention on a large scale. At Lucerne, the reaction of the situation on the Ruhr is being felt, and is arousing an increase in intransigence on the part of Turkey. To sum up, the policy of Italy must be inspired first of all by the defence of her own interests, though at the same time, due note must be taken of considerations and needs of a general order. It is a question whether... By a more exact valuation of the conditions put forward in the Italian Memorandum of London, the grave complications which exist today would not have been avoided. At any rate, the Italian government will take careful and speedy measures to avoid any further difficulties and re-establish as soon as possible a release of tension throughout Europe, which might make it possible to face the problem of reparations and debts under other conditions. The cabinet at the end expressed entire approval of the line of foreign policy adopted by the Prime Minister. End of section 40